Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN, joined as always by my guy Cody Slavtik. You guys can follow him at CJ Slavtik on Twitter. And we are here propping you up for the big UFC 261 fight card this weekend. We got three title fights, co-maining, co-co-maining, and maining this card. So I can't wait to go through it with Cody here. And then we got some decent fights trickled throughout it, right? We got some Chinese UFC debutants trying to ride the coattails of Wally Zhang this weekend. We'll see how they fare in the UFC and uh, a couple other good fights, right? Weidman versus Hall too. Who's not stoked for that? And then obviously uh, uh, Jimmy Crew versus Anthony Smith is rounding out the main card there. Cody, what are your preliminary thoughts about this card? Are you jacked for it? Do you give a fuck about Usman Masvidal too? How do you feel about it? I don't really care about Uzwan Masvidal too, but it's still a great fight. Who doesn't want to see that? Who's going to rightfully turn that down? We're obviously all tuning in, and I think it's a good spot to make money as well. When you look at UFC's efforts to make a good card, a lot of the time it needs supporting cast. It needs these other fights as well. You can't just have – look at the last time Kamaru Usman fought. There's nothing on the card. Absolutely abysmal. At least this time they're giving him two title fights. And the Rose Namajunas fight versus Weili Zhang, is, that's going to be a very exciting stuff, very high level. That's a fun fight. You've got Valentina Shevchenko, who figures to actually be in a legitimate fight this time around. So yeah. a little more intriguing than her last set of fights. As far as the main card goes, my boy Jimmy Crute, as far as the main card goes, legit. As far as the prelims go, you know me, you know yourself. We're obviously yeah. going to watch it. We have a lot of interest there as well, but uh, it rapidly does fall off a cliff. So we'll save our hot takes for the important fights. Maybe some of these lower-end ones. Don't want to waste you too much time. Unless there's a prop that you like, obviously. A lot of it's uh, a lot of it's a stretch. A lot of it's like, don't know if I want to put my money in those spots. So we'll get to them in very shortly, I'm sure. The one UFC debut that I think a lot of people are looking forward to are the return of the fans. That's one thing that's going to be big here. They're down there in Florida where they just don't give a fuck about the coronavirus, apparently. So they're selling out that Star Memorial Arena down there. I believe they have about 15,000 fans that are going to be in attendance. So I can't wait to see how that added change to things since we've been so used to it for over the last year now. I can't wait to see how that affects anything. And more often than not, how it affects the judging again, right? We didn't see that big of a difference with the judging with the fans or without the fans. The judges still suck. Nothing changed. So I'm looking forward to seeing that aspect of it, of it as well, too. All right. Before we kick things off, I do want to remind you guys, Cody is going to be back on the show tomorrow. We're doing the Ultimate Weigh-In Show on my channel here at 9 p.m. Eastern. It'll be me, Cody, Dan Levy from Half the Battle and Best Fight Picks, as well as Brett Apley from Daily Fan MMA. We got a star-studded crew for you guys tomorrow, so I'm sure you guys will want to check it out. Me and Cody might abbreviate a little bit today just so that we can go a little bit harder tomorrow with those other guys, and I can't wait to do that show for you guys. So once again, 9 p.m. tomorrow's tomorrow, huge all-star stack show for the ultimate weigh-in show. All right, let's kick this thing off right away. We got Ariane Carnalosi versus Na Liang. Uh, we got, uh, what are the odds here? Minus 220 on Carnalosi, plus 180 on Nal Young. I'll keep this one short. You know, there's a lot of question marks about these UFC debutants that are coming into the UFC from China. We know they're obviously all the way from the UFC uh, Shanghai PI that they got going on. They're trying to foster these guys over there and try to get them UFC ready, bring them over to the North American fans. And obviously, they're going to be riding the coattails of Wiley Zhang going into this card. Um, 
Nadi Young is the one that I feel like I got the most out of when I'm running the tape on these foreign websites, since that's the only place I can find uh, tape on these fighters. Uh, and she seems to be having a, a grapple-heavy approach, right? She likes to use a wrestling. She doesn't have the greatest setups for her takedowns. She's shooting from, like, miles away at times. But luckily for her, she's not fighting crazy competition. So she's actually able to secure these takedowns and ride them off from on top, sometimes finding the choke, sometimes getting the ground and pound, or sometimes getting reversed and getting finished herself. The most uh, notable names on her record, she's choked out Liana Joe Jua earlier in her career and then she also lost to Juliana Velasquez when she made the trip on over to Bellator and then pretty much never fought for them again pretty much just did the job for them if that's what you want to call it um Carla Losi looks like a mini John Lineker she goes out there and just wings bombs and she's trying to move forward and and trying to knock your head off and the funny thing is I'll let you know about this Cody I was searching uh, through my gifts I typed in steroids and literally, she was like the first one of the first ten things that popped up because no she looked. I, I, I'm not <laughs> even pulling your leg here, dude. It blew me away that Carnalosi was one of the first ones. Like I thought they would have had TRT tour on there. They would have had fucking Brock Lesnar on there or something like that. But Ariane Carnalosi was one of the first ones that actually popped up when I typed that in. But regardless, she fights like that, right? Uh, a lot of people are expecting this to fight to un, uh, to finish under two and a half, uh, considering that the odds are like minus 185-ish, minus 200 for the under two and a half. But I feel like you have a different take on this fight. Personally, I got Liang with very little confidence. I think she'll get her grappling game going and possibly pull off a submission in the second or third round here. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, again, so this is very low-level uh, middling affair. But I think the favor is rightfully so Kuriosi. The UFC hasn't really given her that much... <clears throat> Sorry, having given Liang really that that easy of a fight in her first time out. When you look at Carnalosi, she made her UFC debut against Angela Hill, which talk about a difficult outing for anybody. Yeah. Coming to the UFC, make make your debut against a very savvy veteran of the game. She's had, you know, 15 plus fights in the UFC at this point and uh, is, you know, a ranked contender still to this day, has fought some of the best girls. It's a tough debut. She's actually a slight favorite coming into her UFC debut. People had high expectations for her because she's just so physically strong, very muscular. As you mentioned with the steroid allegations, that aside, she's got great genetics because she's just very physically imposing. The one thing she does is just like John Lineker, she likes to go out there and she likes to wing those bombs. She has eight of her pro wins are way by knockout. I think she has one by way of submission. She is not a submission threat at all. When you look at Liang, that's basically all of her losses have been coming by way of submission, is that these girls are able to grapple her. They're physically stronger than her. Like you said, she likes to grapple herself, but all of the names on her record, theoretically, her losses are notable, right? You look at Lilia Shakarova. Shakarova fought in the UFC. She just lost to Lauren Murphy not that long ago. Uh, is, is she a very high-level talent? Well, that remains to be seen, but at least what I'm saying is that she made it to the UFC. Juliana Vasquez, currently 11-0, and judo black belt, current Bellator champion that beat Ilian McFarlane. You know, a, a very high-rated fighter. Mary Agapova, again, say what you will about her, but a UFC veteran, someone that eventually made it to the dance. And then this Kuhi Yan, which is her last loss, it's almost three years ago. You know, girl's 11-3, and three, three-fight winning streak, very strong, very physically imposing. It's not as if she's out there losing a scrub. For the most part, it's these girls that have gone on to that next level, to perform at that next level. But that last loss that she had against Yan, you know, three years ago now, She's 21 years old, Mandry. So that's the one thing about her is that she's now only 24 years old. She's won four fights in a row. She's getting better. She has this UFC Performance Institute, China, to work at now with Dean Amisinger and just, you know, a host of other talent. They've poured millions of dollars into this uh, Performance Institute to try to develop that next level of Chinese athlete in order to tap into that market. She's one of three fighters that we're about to talk about. She fits that exact same mold. Do I think she's a world beater? No. Do I think she's going to win in the spot? No. Well, I'm going after with the overs in here. Because again, when you look at her and how and how um, she's losing her fights, they're by way of submission. 
Carnelosi, not really a submission threat. So I think that when it breaks down, Liang's going to probably, just like you said, shoot from too far out, try to make this a grappling exchange, but ultimately get reversed. But in clinching up, in shooting those takedowns, in doing all of that, it's going to slow the action down. So Carnelosi, as physically strong as she is, if she doesn't knock Liang out, Liang's never been knocked out, she doesn't knock her out. We're going to bank some rounds here. She's going to try to, the Chinese fire is going to try to wear on her and tire her out. But I do think that Carolosi is just too physically strong to get taken down. She probably will reverse and end up on top. You know, hopefully separate, stand back up, wing a couple bombs, land a couple shots, and then ultimately break her down en route to banking a couple of these rounds in. So again, I don't love these early fights on a betting perspective, but we're in the business of talking about some props that I wouldn't mind in these spots. And the one that I'm looking at here is the over 1.5, a minus 135. Even if Carnelosi does end up just battering her and taking her out, it's going to be after that over 1.5. And if for whatever reason, this girl's made a ton of improvements and is really coming into her own, and Carnelosi has so much muscle at this weight class that she fatigues really late for whatever reason. Again, I don't see this happening. But for whatever reason, if it happened late, it's going to happen late. It's not happening early. So the over one and a half minus 135, I think that's the best action here. But that price tag, 420, a few days removed from the real 420, Carnelosi by decision, it's something we're having a look at. So Carnelosi inside the distance is even money. But Carnelosi by decision is 4 to 1. So they don't know if she's going to finish or if she's not going to finish. However, one pays way better than the other. And how does she win her fights? How does she get the finish with the knockout? And again with Liang, you know, she's tough. She's not getting knocked out. She's getting out grappled. I don't necessarily know that Carnelosi brings that to the table. But then as I say all that, not that this matters, but it is worth noting, Carnelosi just got awarded her BJJ black belt. She's a trading partner with like Laura Procopio and Ketlin Vieira. And I I'm sure she has been making a lot of improvements. Could she get the submission? Yeah. I'm just saying if we're looking at her record and how she traditionally wins these fights, John Lineker's got a black belt too, you know? And yeah. uh, he's actually got a nasty guillotine choke. But like John Lineker's not really trying to use the guillotine choke or the jiu-jitsu. He's trying to smash your face off. And if she has a similar approach, I think we're going to bank some rounds. So the one I like the most is the over one and a half. And then beyond that, small action shot on that by decision, Carnelosi plus 420. Yeah, I didn't even give you guys a prop. My prop I said was uh, Liang by submission, which is plus 450. I, I think we're going to get some violence in this fight under two and a half at minus 185. Chalky as it is, I don't mind that spot personally. All right, let's move on to the next one. We got three straight fights where we got the Chinese uh, debutants coming in. This one, I know I'm going to absolutely butcher the name, and I can't wait for uh, John Anik to hear uh, to say it first so I can actually get it correct. We got Jeff Molina going up against Kalang Auri. Um, very tough one, right? We got even money here on both sides. Uh, we don't really know what we're going to get from Auri truly. Like, uh, out of all the tape that I was able to find, he was the one that I was able to find least on. Uh, but he seems like a decent striker, awkward from the distance. Um, Jeff Molina, obviously a great striker himself too, has submission game up his sleeve, uh, trainer, trained by the infamous James Krause. So, you know, he's going to be well-coached and well-directed in that in that fight. Uh, but I feel like this one is going to play out on the feet. I feel like they're pretty much just going to be point, point fighting with each other. I'd have to give the ever so slight advantage of power to Iori. Um, I'm just not sure by how much. Um, but uh, again, I need to see these guys over in the UFC a little bit more against legitimate competition and not just regional guys from, from Asia, right? We know regional from like Asia is just like, I don't even know if they'd cut it in Alaska FC. Let's be honest, right? A lot of these guys aren't even like sure up to that could. level. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I do like uh, I do like Molina ever so slightly here, but just not with the, uh, the utmost confidence. In terms of a prop, I, I think this is one that, like you're saying, <clears throat> it is going to bank rounds. Fight starts round two, minus 185. Fight starts round three, plus 135. Oh, sorry. I am looking at the Carnalosi and Leon fight. I apologize. 
uh, the Molina and Ari fight. We got uh, fight starts around two plus minus six fifty. Yeah, crazy chalk there. Fight starts around three minus three twenty five. But Molina by decision is the way that I'd approach it. If you have a gun to my head, and that's plus one ninety, and I don't think that's too bad of a price tag here. But there's just so many unknowns about the Chinese fighter here that I'm just like, why even waste my money? Why am I going to this level of degeneracy? to try to make some money this weekend. But uh, I'm leaning Molina. Do you see anything else different on tape that um, that sways you the other way? No, not really. I mean, with Molina, his little claim to fame <clears throat> there being out of uh, glory MMA and fitness in Kansas with James Cross is that for 2020 anyways, he was like their uh, best teammate of the year and their most improved fighter of the year, right? Two awards that really just suggest that this is a guy that's in the gym all the time. He's you know, attending all the classes. He's doing his two-a-days. And he's still only 23 years old. And I think that you're seeing rapid improvement out of him. He actually starts his pro career one and two. And since yeah. then, it's just like you see this new vibe to him where he's making these rapid improvements. When you look at Glory MMA and Fitness and you look at the cast of characters and guys that are coming out of that gym, they're not necessarily on paper the most athletic. They're not necessarily on paper the most skillful guys. They all do have heart. They come in with great game plan. They're, out, they're always in really good shape. Cardio is a weapon. And I think that this kid is going to really benefit from being around these guys day in and day out, making those improvements. So when you see him beat Kenny Porter, that would have been his most notable win. He's fought a lot of soft competition, but beating Kenny Porter is something notable, at the very least, for a young fighter. And then he gets that contender series fight against Jacob Silva. Now, it's not exactly the toughest task for him, Jacob Silva, but it is worth noting that he breaks his foot in the first round, right? Tells his coach, he's like, listen, man, I broke my foot. And to be able to persevere from that as a young 23-year-old fighter, that's all great stuff to bank in here. Now, he was supposed to fight Zaruk Adeshev, so he knows he gets the contract. Aiden tells him to get the contract, end of the episode. He's preparing for UFC fight. He's got Zaruk Adeshev, who's a striker. You know the game plan's going to take this guy down. And Molina test positive for COVID. You know? uh, does that affect him? Does, did, did, it, did it throw his training off? Is he not in great shape? I, I don't know. But if you want to just discontinue that, you've got a young, green fighter, probably going to have a little bit of a speed advantage. He's going to be able to fight better from the outside. I do think he's got decent grappling as well. If he could force his fight to the ground, he'd have some success. Cardio doesn't seem to be an issue as well. Barring he doesn't break his foot or something like that again, I think he's going to have some success standing in this fight. But I don't think he's the physically stronger guy, right? If I were he's just able to close this distance. I mean, they call the guy the Mongolian murderer for yeah. a reason. You, know, you, don't just, you don't just walk into a nickname like that. You know, what I I mean? know. you got to go and earn a nickname like that. And see, he's one of these aggressive guys that's going to come forward and push the pace a little bit. I wouldn't say push the pace like ton of volume, but he hits really hard. So yeah. my, my issue is that we get screwed every single week on bad judging. And this is the kind of fight that I can see Molina doing a lot of good work on the outside, like a Chris Gutierrez, using the leg kicks, using that range, using your jab, picking him up, but the power's not quite there. And the flip side to that, you have Auri marching him down. He's got forward pressure. He's got perceived aggression. He's going to be landing the more eye-catching shots, and then it's going to the scorecards, and it's really just, what, what did you favor on that night? I can see it being close. I can see it being a split. I can see people complaining online. So if I don't want it gun to my head pick, whatever side you take, you take the guy by decision, I think, and it's good plus money both sides. I think it's plus 190 for Molina. It's plus 175 for Auri. That's fine. The fight to go the distance, which is what I like the most, it is minus 215. It is chalked up, not great looking at this point, but I think that neither guy has the power to knock the other guy out. I, I don't think submission game really comes into it. If it does, it'd be Molina. be smart game plan. You know Kraus will have the smart game plan, but uh, the Mongolian murder is kind of a big, imposing, tough guy, right? So I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to invest a ton of money here, but the play would be fight goes the distance minus 215. And again, you told me gun to my head. I want to say Molina got a feeling that the UFC's Performance Institute, China, multi-million dollar facility, 
Uh, they're in Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs> Judges could easily go the other way. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Chinese fighter might get the rub in a close fight. Carolosi's fight shouldn't be all that close. She yeah. should be okay. Fight like this, and we're going to talk about the next one as well. You know, if they're closer fights, then you're going to have an issue on your hands. But uh, I guess very tentatively, I would take Molina as well. All right. I, I can't wait to see it, like, truly play out, right? We want to find out more about this Chinese fighter, especially with that nickname, man. God damn. That guy's got to yeah. have some serious, like, skills that that we're going to be uh, be able to see on, on display this weekend. <clears throat> All right. Let's move on to the next one. We got uh, Zhu Rong going up against uh, Rodrigo Vargas here. And Zhu Rong coming in minus 250 favorite. It almost seems like a setup fight for him here to get that first one in the UFC, get uh, acclimated with the North American scene here. Um but Rodrigo Vargas, what does he truly bring to the table, right? You're talking about a guy that was a pretty hefty underdog going into that Brock Weaver the last time around, uh, the Brock Weaver fight until he illegally uh, need him. And uh, that was one of the worst, like, illegal knees that we've ever seen, right? Like, <laughs> you saw DJ get put up by Adriano Moraes the other week, uh, but that was legal. But this one, God damn, that was, that was really, really bad. Um, but the interesting part is he was actually winning that fight up until that point, right? Like the fight before that against Alex De Silva, he was the one getting grapple fucked for 15 minutes. And he's like, you know what? Let me try this out. Let me try it out uh, and uh, and try to do it to my next opponent. The only thing you forgot is that you just got a down opponent to the head because this guy is just so violent and vicious. But uh, it, it seemed like it was working pretty well for him. But then again, talking about Brock Weaver, right? I don't even know if Brock Weaver's in the UFC anymore. Like that, it's the level of competition is just so low. But what I've been seeing from Zhu Rong, and I might be wrong here, but there's no way this guy's 21 years old. Are you fucking kidding me? At 20 fights, this guy's 21, he's 21 years old. Ah, I'm calling the bluff here. Like Song Yudong was like what 14 when he came into the UFC. It, it just just doesn't make any fucking sense to me. But I think out of all the three debutants that we got here, Rong looks like he has the most potential. He looks like the more more well-rounded guy, uh, solid gra uh, grappling, good striking, solid power in his hands too. His three losses have come via dis uh, submission, so that's something that he's going to have to worry about moving forward. I just don't think that's something he's going to have to worry about here with Rodrigo Vargas. I expect this fight to primarily play out on the feet, and I think that in that situation we'll get Rong uh, having the upper hand pretty much at all times in this fight. It is an MMA fight at the end of the day, right? You are going to have to worry about the power coming back your way as Vargas is pretty heavy-handed himself. But I think that we'll get the better technique, the better overall MMA game here from uh, Zhu Rong. And I think he's actually live to finish uh, Vargas here. And the, the prop that I'm looking at here is going to be uh, Rong by KO is plus 135. I wish it was slightly better than that, to be honest. Uh, even if you want to take the under 2.5 at minus 160, it's a little bit chalky, but it does cover the possibility of Vargas going out there and getting a knockout of his own. Am I willing to go out there and invest minus 250 on a guy making his UFC debut? Nah, like we've seen it time and time again this this year, right? Lupita Godina, say what you want about that decision, right? That she, she lost the fight. At the end of the day, she fought closely enough that one judge or two judges actually believed that Jessica Penny won the fight. Same thing could happen here, but I don't see it going to a judge's scorecard. I do see it ending inside the distance. I think it's going to be wrong that gets his hand uh, raised, but I'm not investing any serious money into this fight. We need to see these guys fight legitimate competition before we can start riding on home that these guys are worth minus 250. So if you are looking to get the best value out of it, which is why we do this propping you up show, plus 135 on the KO line seems decent. You're getting some good plus money there. But let's see him prove himself first before we truly invest in him. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, I mean, listen, not only is he making his UFC debut, which is always tough to get behind, like you said, not only is he an unheralded Chinese prospect, who hasn't really fought anybody of note so far, like all these all these big question marks. 
he's 21 years old, man. Yeah. Like think about the monumental task of going out there and fighting in the UFC, the, the world's premier mixed martial arts organization at 21. I mean, he turned pro two weeks after his 15th birthday. He was 16 yeah. years old, just turned 16 and he's fighting in, in professionally in China and it, he's 21 and he's got 20 pro fights. Like that's all he's done is just fight, 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 fight. Like that's crazy to me. But at the same time, like it, you're going to need some time to properly develop. And you see Song Yudong is a great example. You know, here's a solid Chinese prospect who yeah. has to leave, come to team alpha male and go through trials and tribulations, have these close fights, make those improvements. And it looks like he is making improvements, but you still got to go through all that. Wrong is still very green. He's still got a long ways to go. You know, similar to a stage North cut when he burst into the UFC, it was like exciting to see him there, but, He's just—he's so young, man. He's so green. So with wrong, like yet, like you mentioned, we're gonna need to see this guy fight a few times. Now the UFC apparently got this heavy investment in these three Chinese fighters to kick off the card, and, and, and realistically, they haven't really done them overly great favors in the matchmaking front. Like by the numbers, the most realistic uh, one to win is, is beating Jeff Molina. It's a 50-50 fight. It's a close fight. The other two, it's like you know, Rong's got a favorable matchup, and you know, uh, Liang probably doesn't. Rung's got to go out there and he's got to do the damn thing. But there's not really all that many easy fights. And giving him Kazula Vargas, on paper, he's 0-2 in the UFC. On paper, he doesn't really bring much to the table. On paper, he's like a few months removed from his 36th birthday, hasn't fought in over a year. Like, there's a lot that, you know, you can easily discredit this guy for. But at the same time, man, like, he's a full-grown man. He's already fought twice in the UFC. And he's really durable. That's his key here. He's a very durable guy. So with Rung, even though he's got these 17 victories, he finishes a lot of these guys relatively quick his cardio doesn't seem to be an issue i like this guy's striking i think it's dynamic i think he's improving a lot at 21 you know it makes me salivate to think how how improved and how good he'll be at 25 or at 30 you know like the sky sky's the limit for this guy if he puts himself in the best position to train and the best training partners available and continues to make improvements like he you know he's got the goods it's just it's going to be a while to tie it all together and with kazula vargas man let's not discredit the fact that he's got four pro losses right of those four pro losses, he was disqualified against Brock Weaver, so, you know, it is what it is. Alex Silva, BJJ Black Belt. Alex Silva, you know, strong physical guy, good grappling. He's not able to take him out. Fight goes three rounds. This Marco Antonio LPDO fight, right? It's like four years ago. Loses a split decision. Again, goes to the distance. And then Jose Caceres, only man to finish him. Hits him with a reverse triangle choke. So, one, oh. two, reverse triangle choke. Two, Jose Caceres is also the only guy to ever defeat Kamaru Usman, submitting him with a rear naked choke. Like, you know what Kamara Usman and, and Rodrigo Cazulo Vargas have in common? Not very much, <laughs> other than the only guy to finish them is Jose Caceres, right? So funny stat there. What I'm saying is that submission defense doesn't seem to be a problem for him. His chin, you know, I hate to be the stereotype that says it all the time, but like cast iron Mexican chin on him. <laughs> he, he doesn't go down quietly, right? So my problem with Wrong is that even though he seems to be the more skillful guy, he is green. He still does need to bank some rounds against better competition. And I can see him easily going out to a quick lead over Vargas and then eventually getting a little bit tired, maybe a little bit, you know, bewildered, a little bit caught in the moment. And if Vargas is able to complete some takedowns, especially, you saw the Brock Weaver fight. I mean, he starches him a little bit, but, uh, you know, he ground game didn't seem like it was going to be an issue until he blasted him in the face with the knee. It looks like Vargas does have some skill. If he's able to put it all out there, he'd be considered a live underdog. Now, again, I think the UFC does know what they're doing. I do think that this fight primarily stays standing, and I think that Rong is the quicker, better striker. So over the course of three rounds, I think he should pick up this points lead. But I wouldn't completely discredit and write Vargas out and that he couldn't take this fight to the ground and mix things up. Now, again, you don't want to pick a straight-up winner in this fight, and we're looking at some props. The props I like, first and foremost, is, is over 1.5 at minus 160. 
So again, if Rong's going to win this fight, it's going to be a striking battle. He's not, in my opinion, not knocking out Vargas, not submitting Vargas. He's just going to outpoint him standing. If Vargas has his way, he's able to control him, tire him out, grind on him, complete some takedowns. We're still getting overs in this, right? Over one and a half, minus 160, over two and a half, plus 130. So that's not even fight goes the distance. If one of them is able to get caught late, that's fine. The over two and a half plus money, plus 130. And of course, if you want to just take that, plus, that fight to go the distance, it's plus 165. If you were that much of a wrong guy and you really thought, you know what, I like what I see of this kid. I think he's developing. I think the UFC knows exactly what they're doing. And they've tailor-made a, a perfect opponent for him to use some of that outside striking and, and kind of get the victory. Then I don't like paying that minus 250 money line. But if I thought he was going to win, I kind of think he's going to win by decision over Vargas who kind of just refuses to get put away quietly. So that wrong by decision is plus 335. And to me, that's a big enough price tag that's like, you know, worth a small little punt sprinkle. All right, I like it. I like it. I can't wait to see this one actually play out. And uh, one thing I did want to mention regarding this, it kind of reminds me of the Carlos Olberg and Kennedy and Zetchukul fight where you know that they sent Zurong a list of guys yeah. and they probably chose Rodrigo Vargas. And unfortunately for Carlos Olberg, we saw what happened there. There is still a possibility that the setup fight could blow up in their face and we can see Rodrigo Vargas go out there and get a victory, right? Uh, and, and last thing I do want to give a big shout out here to Hunter Silvers, who's shouting out Dynasty Warriors. That is a game I used to play way back in the day as well, too. And Zurong is the first thing I thought of as well. So I was very happy to actually see that uh, pop up in the comment section here. So shout out to my guy, Hunter Silvers. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got Dana Batgadil versus Kevin Natividad. Uh, Looks like a striker versus grappler type of matchup. Obviously, Batgirl, very uh, talented in the Muay Thai and kickboxing realm. Uh, Kevin Natividad has some sneaky submissions up his sleeve, and I think his inability to get the fight to the ground is ultimately going to cost him here. I really like Batgirl in this spot. I think he can let up Kevin Natividad on the feet. Uh, even though we did see Haile Tank take down um, Dana Batgirl in their fight, especially in that third round where he was able to grind him out there, I think Alateng has a better wrestling game than what Kevin Natividad brings to the table. Obviously, the last time we saw Natividad come to the cage, it was his UFC debut, and he gets knocked silly by Miles Johns in that third round. If you remember that knockout, one of the weirder knockouts where he did like a half backflip and almost spiked his head on the mat. Uh, but great knockout win for Miles Johns. They're not so good for Kevin Natividad. But I'm expecting to see a, a solid Dana Batgadil here. I, I like the kid. You know, one of the few guys, I think the only fighter of Mongolian descent to actually uh, fight in the cage. So it's a, that's a cool little backstory to have uh, with this guy coming into to the UFC. Um, again, I think he's the better striker. I think Natividad is going to have his hands full on the feet. Um, and if Natividad is successful in getting this fight to the ground, it could get a little bit interesting. And that minus 185 may not look that great, but I do think that the, the striking is going to start to wear on Natividad. And I think that this is uh, a spot where we could possibly look at another round three finish. I don't know Natividad got finished in the third round last time around. Um, I'm not as you know keen on it as I was like the the Barrio uh, round three or anything like that, but I think that this has a slight chance to finish in the third round. You got plus you got plus eleven twenty five on Batkriel in round three, but even if you just want to take Batkriel by KO, you're looking at plus two forty five, which is uh, what I think is a very solid spot here. I'm not the highest on the TV dad. I'm not sure if it's some sort of bias that I have against the guy or anything like that, but I I just don't think he has the skills to truly cut it here in the UFC, and especially if you can't get past a guy like. Um, uh, Bat Gadil, it's you know, you're not really going to cut it in the UFC here. We'll, we'll give him a pass on the Miles Johns fight, as I do think that Miles Johns is a solid fighter and he does have some longevity inside the UFC. But Bat Gadil, I, I don't know, I think that this is one of the few fighters that he'll be able to beat on the roster and he should be able to take home a TKO victory here. So, again, plus 245 ish for Bat Gadil to win by uh, by knockout. I like it. 
how are you seeing this one? Yeah, okay, I agree with you. So the prop that I liked was fight doesn't go the distance at minus 115. And I think, yeah, I think Bakaril is going to be able to take his best shots and then break him down and hopefully put him away the, the longer the fight goes. You mentioned he's the only Mongolian fighter on the roster. Actually, fault, smart little thing, he's on the same card with this Kai Lang Aori, the Mongolian murderer. So, yeah, but he's Chinese, is he not? <laughs> well, so that's when you get into political stuff, okay. right? Where he is Mongolian, but is yeah. Mongolia part of China? Like, just depends how you classify it. But he's born in Inner Mongolia, R regardless. <laughs> uh, regardless, yeah, it's cool to see two of them on the same card. I think that's yeah. the theme here is that the UFC is trying out some of these, these Asian prospects, uh, especially from China and that region, and hoping that some of them stick. The difference here is that you've got a much more refined guy, a 31-year-old fighter who's already kind of accrued a little more experience. And, and I like what I see at a back reel. When you talk about that Haley Alatang fight in his debut, I mean, it's 1-1 going into the third, kind of a judge, gut check performance. He comes up on the, on the losing end of the decision. But after that, he leaves the confines of you know his own gym and ends up going to Greg Jackson's camp over in New Mexico. I think you've seen a lot of improvements from him since then. He's obviously strong. He's obviously got a lot of power. That's a that's a, a characteristic that you see from pretty much all Mongolian fighters. Uh, their wrestling is actually pretty good, and they're very, very strong. So I think that he's going to be able to go out there and stuff Kevin Natividad's takedowns, keep this fight standing, and just wear on him and chip away at him. Now, when you look at Kevin Natividad, uh, okay, so first and foremost, right, people loved him going into the Miles Johns fight, and I couldn't yeah. quite figure it out. You know, he's a plus 110 underdog. Miles Johns, a former LFA champ. Miles Johns fought some incredible guys. Miles Johns has been in the UFC. I couldn't quite figure out what people were loving about Kevin Natividad, especially considering just two fights ago, just like a year prior, he had gone to a split decision with Andy Perez in LFA. Andy Perez was a 7-7 seven and seven opponent, right? Then the Miles Johns fight, he goes out. Like you mentioned, we like Miles Johns. You know, it's no no disrespect losing to a guy like that. But what is interesting to note is Miles Johns only knocked out three career opponents, and Kevin Natividad being the third one. He had not knocked out an opponent in like five years. Pretty much Miles Johns either beats you by split decision or decision or uh, maybe a submission victory, but he's not really known for his punching power. So to see him melt Kevin Natividad, Little, little bit of a question mark about his chin. Then you look at his only other pro lawsuit, which is against Glenn Baker, currently a fighter, not, not really doing much with his career, but he, he gets knocked down that fight in nine seconds, right? LFA 24. So again, do we have a problem with Kevin Natividad's durability? The longer the fight goes, he did tire against Miles Johns, although to his credit, he took the fight on six days notice. Yeah. So expected that he would tire. This spot, if he doesn't tire, he's able to push more of a pace. He's able to kind of work that grappling. It, it, it would be probably the path to victory. But I think even then, even though he's coming out of Arizona combat sports and he's working on his wrestling, he's not really a wrestler. I don't think that he's going to be successful in taking Bakarel down consistently. And that the more he tries to take him down, the more he'll fatigue. The later this fight goes, Bakarel just hopefully gets to him, tires him out, wears him down, and is able to get that TKO. I know you love those third-round TKO props. And I, and I thought the same thing. I was like, he's going to like these ones because that's how Bakarel would probably get the job done. Yes, Nativity has been knocked out in nine seconds. So it could also happen in the first round one would think he tires him out a little bit first. So the two props there being the fight doesn't go the distance, plus 115, plus money, and then that back gorel by TKO is 245. Back gorel round two, 625. Back gorel round three is, is 1125. If that's your, you know, if, if that's kind of your angle you're approaching, you take, you know, shots like that. Those are both interesting plays, but I think the safe money would be fight doesn't go the distance and maybe just that straight up back gorel TKO.
I like it. I like it. I do want to bring up my guy SKD here. He's saying his back a uh, jinx as the public's favorite. And I won't lie, when I originally skimmed through these odds, I was kind of surprised that back was like that sub 200 favorite that everybody seems to be on. I'm not even sure I can find many people that are actually backing Kevin Natividad in this spot. So hopefully we're not jinxing him with all the love that he's been getting. Obviously, me and you are firmly on him here too. So we'll see how that one goes. But uh, yeah, uh, we both like him to finish. And obviously that round three prop is definitely very live here. All right, let's move on to the next fight. We got Tristan Connolly versus Pat Sabatini. You are infamous for being one of the few guys that actually took uh, Tristan Connolly in his UFC debut on short notice against Michelle Pereira especially, you know, with Michelle Pereira fighting the dumbass way that he did that night, it allowed Tristan Connolly to get the victory a little bit easier. Now, the one thing that I found about uh, interesting about Connolly's career over his regional scene is this guy's fought from 145 all the way up to 185. Like, he doesn't give a fuck about weight classes, it seems like, right? This guy seems like a a money weight kind of guy where it's like, wherever the money is, I'll fucking go there. I don't <laughs> give a shit. And uh, the two fights he had at 145 on the regional scene, he ended up losing one of those being to Mario Pereira, who I know you know very well. Oh, yeah. Kind of surprised. I was wondering, actually, if you could shed some quick light here. Where the fuck is Mario Pereira? He hasn't fought since that fight. The guy seemed like he had a really big uh, uh, spotlight and, and had a huge uh, you know, steam behind him. Can you just give me a quick update regarding Mario, where he's at? Yeah, I mean, he was trained by Richard Ho at that uh, H2O MMA. He was a training yeah. partner of Ole Obey Mercier. And yes, guy was a living for this kid. He was dusting people. He lost to Jeremy Kennedy, who went on to do great things, fought in the UFC, is currently in Bellator. And uh, he beat Tristan Connolly. And then that was it. I mean, I just don't think the money is there for a lot of these guys. So they quickly vanish away. Uh, the, a great example of a similar to one to this is your boy, uh, Neilan Hordat Reese, who fought, yeah. you know, in a Fuck lot of yeah. people's myself included opinion got robbed against Kyle Nelson yep. and Kyle Nelson goes on to fight in the UFC and make it and fight internationally and, you know get get a little bit of credit I think he won up a little bit of bonus money for his win over Polo Reyes like has a little highlight reel that he can put together has lost against good a good level of competition and, yeah. and Neilan who be, beat him he did in my opinion straight up he beat him just like pff, vanished never fought again it's tough. It's a tough proposition to be. I remember when I brought in uh, Kyle Nelson to fight Ainsley Robinson. Ainsley Robinson wrestled for Canada at the Olympics, right? He's, he's a hell of a wrestler. He's a great athlete. He's a, you know, at the time he was like a BJJ brown belt or purple belt, but you knew he was just going to take you down and grind you. Like that's a tough, tough proposition for a young fighter to take a fight like that. And uh, paid him a thousand bucks. And it's just show money. There's no win money. Thousand bucks. Like yeah. how, how do you convince somebody to do something like that? You'd have to like really want to do it. So problem is guy, I'll have a, a family or I'll have an education or I'll have a, a fallback plan. You get a couple of injuries and then it makes you just like realize like, like I don't know, it. man. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's just not worth it. So I, I, I just, everyone's got a different path in life. I've always said it's not necessarily the best guy. Cause you, you've trained in gyms, right? In fact, you yeah. manage a gym, you manage a huge gym. Think about how many guys walked in where you're like, damn, dude, this guy's got the Trust goods. Me, man. And then they just fall off the map, like Michael yeah. Karkula. And like, it's just like these guys could go very, very far, but they don't get the attitude. Then you see a guy walk in, Sergey Yuskevich, right? Yeah. And just like maybe lacking some skill. And it's just like junkyard dog. Wants it more yeah. than he wants to breathe. Will jump on a limb if he has to take it home. And it's like these guys end up going a lot farther, right? So again, I always say it's not, not the most talented guy. It's who sticks around the longest, like who 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 who's there at the end of the day Tristan Connolly pretty much embodies that right so look at a guy that actually starts his career off he's what three and four to start his pro career losing yeah. to Miles Mariola and Matt Trudeau and da Dan Ring Nick Ring's yeah. brother you know what I mean like <laughs> bad bad start dude bad start four and three but it's just like he doesn't care fight anybody yeah. fight all the time 
loses to Mario especially, Pereira. Especially at all these different weight classes, right? Like you're saying, like even the Mario Pereira one, when I saw that on his record, and again, the thing that stood out to me was that was at 145, and he's winless at 145 now, so I'm surprised that he's coming down to this weight class here in the UFC, especially against a hot prospect like Sabatini, right? Sabatini yeah. is a guy... Very strong wrestler, former CFFC champion. Uh, obviously, he was supposed to fight Rafael Alves a couple of weeks ago before Alves ate himself before stepping on the scales. <laughs> but uh, I think that this is a great fight for Zabatini. I think he can go out there and just absolutely grind on Connolly. I think he's going to obviously going to be have the the five year youth advantage. He's going to have the the. I, in my opinion, I think he's going to have the jujitsu advantage. I think this is going to be a high action, high offensive fight. And that could actually help the under two and a half here. Like if you want to talk about statistically how it's played out, 20 or five out of the 20 fights that um, Tristan Connolly has have gone to a decision. Uh, four, I believe, out of the 16 fights in Sabatini's career have gone to a decision. So they have a pretty high hit rate in terms of either getting finished or fighting the finish themselves. Tristan Connolly has been finished twice in his uh, in his uh, five losses. Uh, and then Sabatini, on the other hand, is still a guy that goes out there and looks for these finishes more often than not. So I do like Sabatini in this spot. The price has been absolutely stomped to death. Shout out to my guy Nick West who said that as well. The the, the opener was crazy, right? You got plus one hundred five yeah. on fucking uh, on Sabatini, and then everybody just rushes in and get that. You know, shout out to the hundred dollar betters out there. But you know, you, you're getting that crazy line. But now he's at the line that a lot of people were expecting him to be at, right? Minus two twenty sounds about right. Minus two hundred sounds about right here. And it's just going to be being slightly a step ahead, which I think ultimately is going to be the uh, the downfall here for Tristan Connolly. So I I'm a slight uh, proponent of the under 2.5, which is at plus 175. Again, I love me some violence. I just feel like these guys match up very well. More often than not, when you get guys like this, it turns into a striking match. But even with that said, I think that we are going to get some good grappling exchanges out of here. And I think that we'll see Sabatini actually come out well, with a submission here. Plus 340 is a very solid line to take a shot on him to win by submission, as I believe that he's going to be the better guy here. Am I wrong? Talk me down. No, I think you're right, man. And again, this is coming from the guy that had Tristan Connolly his last time out. But again, it's all about right place, right time. So when you look at Tristan Connolly, this is the cool thing about him, right? So after he lost to Mario Pereira, we'll start from there. Uh, he beats Ashman Shreggy, and then five weeks later, he beat Adam Asenza. Very yeah. quick turnaround. It's something like four months later, he fights his next fight, and then it's it's like again, it's like a six week turnaround to him beating Lenny Wheeler. Then after Lenny Wheeler, this is his last career loss to Shane Campbell. We fought him literally four weeks later. It's a guy that, because we talked about it, loves to fight. He has no fucks. Guy that's going to improve. He's just going out there and doing it over and over. So when you look at his run leading up to the UFC, he beats Tyrone Henderson, right? But then beats Jack Jusola. Two months later, Dewan Owens. Two months later, UFC debut against Mario Pereira. No doubt in my mind, he was in great shape. He, was, he had literally fought twice in the prior four months. He's a guy that normally likes... He strives on these five, six-week turnarounds. He's in great shape. He's fighting all the time. And he's used to fighting for basically free. So making a UFC debut, yeah, 12 grand to the show up, perfect. It's like, man, he's got great cardio. He's a BJJ black belt, and he's very durable. When you look at how he's losing, Shane Campbell caught him in a knee bar. That's a bit of a head-scratcher considering Shane Campbell's Muay Thai background. But Campbell can grapple. It's just a bit of a head-scratcher considering most people didn't see that one coming. But then Mario Pereira, Miles Mariola, he had a shoulder injury, Dan Ring. All those fights are all decision, right? Knocking out Tristan Connolly, good luck. Pereira threw a flying knee at his head, just, just about grazed him. But it's like his chin's good. His submission defense, you know, he's a BJJ black belt. He has a gym in Vancouver. He trains people under him. Like, gra grappling's pretty solid. He's a durable guy. So you would think in the, in the, when he took that fight, his last time out against Michelle Pereira, it was all about just survive the first round. This guy's going to tire. He always does. 
he actually missed weight, which I didn't know at the time when I made the bet, but he ended up missing weight. So you knew prayer had a bad weight cut. It all was just like writing on the wall. And then he goes out there, survives the first round like he needs to do, and then just grinds him into the ground. That's not on the table now with Pat Sabatini. Because now instead of having these quick little two-month turnarounds that he's been having, he comes to this fight with like a 16-month layoff. So that's something that he's not usually generally dealing with. The other thing too, he comes into this fight, he's 35 years old. So for as much as he's seemingly a prospect, he's 1-0 in the UFC with a huge upset. He's actually theoretically at the tail end of the run. As well, he's coming off massive neck surgery where he had to have like a disc in his neck fused. It's a huge injury to come back from. We don't know if that Rolls-Royce engine's still there. We don't know if he's going to have three-round cardio for all, all day like he generally does. We don't know if he's going to be a little bit rusty in the stand-up department. We don't know if he's been training at the same optimal level. He has been at Extreme Couture the last month. He does appear to be in good shape, but it's a lot of question marks for, for an older fighter to be coming back to. Uh, and then you talk about him dropping down from 170, not to 155, but all the way down to 145, a weight class he hasn't made in six years, and a weight class he lost last time he competed at. It's all just like enough that you like wouldn't really want to get behind it. So I agree. I think Pat Sabatini should be the rightful victor. Um, the best line that I liked on this fight was just the fight goes the distance at minus 175. So Sabatini loves to grapple as well. I mean, he's got a really good submission game. I don't think he submits Tristan Connolly. Again, they're both black belts. They're both good um, grapplers. They both have good gas tanks. Sabatini is a CFFC champion. Their champions only fight four rounds. If it's 2-2 two, yeah. two, after four, then you get that fifth round. In his fights that went that long, it, he was up. So he can fight 20 minutes. We know that. So cardio doesn't seem to be an issue for him as well. Connolly's never had cardio issues. It just seems like both these guys are going to go out there, have a very fun fight. They're going to try to both break each other. I just don't know that either man is successful in breaking the other in a 15-minute 15 15 time span. So uh, I got fight goes the distance at minus 175. The official pick would be Pat Sabatini, Pat Sabatini by decision. Uh, but, I mean, you can't discredit Connolly. Oh, and the last thing is, like, when I remember when I met Connolly, and I want to be like, I want to thank this guy. This is the biggest bet, single bet money line that I've ever hit, right, confidently. Like, not just, like, we'll put a little punt, like, you know, back it. Felt good, you know, people reaching out being like, that one felt good, right? When I talked to him about it, he's like, man, you think that felt good? He's like, I, he's fought his entire career for very, very few dollars, right? Oh, yeah. So he wins his UFC debut. He gets his 12000 They give him an additional 12000 because he won it. It's $3,000 from Reebok. It's $25,000. The fight is awarded fight of the night, so he gets $50,000. And then because Pereira missed decision, or because his opponent missed the decision, he uh, he gets his 50 Gs too. So he ends up making $125,000. And Crazy. he's like, this is this is life-changing. And then life-changing, he hasn't fought since. You know, now he's running his gym. Now he got the neck surgery. Now he's had a little bit of money in his savings account. You know, Now he's investing a little bit. Like that's that's so that changes you a little bit as well, right? Now you're coming back. Now you got to get back to junkyard dog mode, but you're 35 years old and you got a fused neck. Like as the time passed him by, like Sabatini wants it, man. Pat Sabatini wants it bad. I know they all want it. I, I I guess that's a bad way to put it, right? Like who's competing here that doesn't doesn't want it? But uh, I just feel like this young, hungry aggressor is going to be a little bit more than a veteran who's kind of, you know, going to take his time and have a feel out round. Like, it's better to fight the guys like Court McGee who are like, uh, they'll give you a round to like figure it out before they bring it on. Like it gives you time to get your feet. So like these young guys like Sabatini, they're making their debut. They're young, they're hungry, they're aggressive. Training partner out of Sean, with Sean Brady out uh, in Pennsylvania at Henzo Gracie's camp out there. Like what's there not to like about this guy, right? He's going to come at you. And I feel like he'll probably get him in the long run. So 15 minute decision for Sabatini. 
right? I like it. I like it. Let's move on to the next one here. And I'm going to tee this one up to you, and then I got to hop off for a quick second to take care of something. But Brendan Allen versus Carl Roberson, great fight, minus 155 on Allen, plus 135-ish on uh, Carl Roberson. Obviously, the scales is going to be a little bit of a challenge for Roberson here as he's missed weight a couple times now. So that's one thing that we're really going to have to see. But uh, I'll let you lead this one off, and I'll hop right back on. So uh, how do you feel about Brendan Allen against Carl Roberson here, buddy? Well, yeah, I guess it just kind of depends about like the Brendan Allen that shows up. If, if he's able to get the fight to the ground consistently, he's going to be a threat. We all know with Carl Roberson, you know, as much as he is a credited kickboxer, you probably don't want to stand this guy for a prolonged period of time. He'll chip away at you and hurt you. Uh, his takedown defense seems to leave something to be desired, and his grappling has just been so far no good. I mean, he's got three professional losses. He's been submitted all three times, all three times in the first round. Now, we will be able to give the guy a bit of a pass in saying that Level of competition has to be considered for something. And he has been fighting decent guys, right? When you look at the losses, is losing a fight to Marvin Vittori a, a deal breaker? No, no. Marvin Vittori, top five guy in the world. You know, somebody, a loss to him, he, that's not a, it's not a setback. It's all good. It's a learning experience. A loss to Glover Teixeira, is that, is that an issue? No, 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 not, not, not an issue. Glover Teixeira, absolutely the man. You know, uh, fighting for a UFC title coming coming up. Fought John Jones to a five-round decision back in the day. Been Been here, done that. Great wrestling, great grappling. What's there not to like about Glover Teixeira? It's like, okay, Cesar Mutanche, Cesar Mutanche, BJJ Blackhawk. That's how he was fighting. Get these fights to the ground. Rest you to the ground. Get that submission. So with Carl Roberson, even though the blueprint has been made, even though we do know how to defeat this man, the best path to victory against him, it's like it does still take an elite-level fighter to, in order to do that. Brandon Allen seems to have the goods. It's that, again, at 25 years old, he seems to just like be a little, I don't know if it's nervousness, I don't know if it's like a bit of anxiety, but he goes out there and he wants to get the fight finished as quick as possible. And the longer these fights have been playing out, the, the more you start to see him kind of run into some issues. So when he's at his best, I mean, no doubt about it, the guy can put it all together. But what's important to note is both of his losses in LFA before he came to the UFC against Eric Anders and Anthony Hernandez were both five-round fights, right? They're both five-round fights for the title, but they're fights that... The longer the fight goes, this guy is getting taken down. He is getting controlled. He is getting tired. So that's no problem. He's fighting three rounds in the UFC. Cardio shouldn't be an issue, right? But again, the fight with Aaron Jeffrey on Contender Series, quick first-round finish, gets Jeffries out as quick as he can. The Kevin Holland fight, he's lucky he got that fight finished in the second because he was rapidly getting tired. I guess so is Kevin Holland, but, I mean, it was a good thing he finished it when he did. The Tom Breeze fight, first-round finish, right? You don't get to see it. The Kyle Doukas fight, Man, outside that first round, he looks mint, crisp, wrestling on point, grappling on point, doing a very excellent job. The longer the fight starts to progress, Kyle Doukas, who's a big underdog, coming in on relatively short notice and is completely unheralded. We know now that he's good, but the longer the fight goes, that's where you see Brandon Allen start to get into issues again. So, you know, going into the Sean Strickland fight, I know Locke was on the same page as me. You like Sean Strickland because he spent so much time working on that takedown defense. He's a long-range striker. He's feeling himself. He's back from the motorcycle accident, but he just got a, a good three rounds in against uh, John Phillips, where, um, sorry, Jack Marshman, where he was just you know feeling good, feeling confident, feeling cocky again, getting that swagger back to him. And he goes out there and knocks out Brandon Allen. But it's the same thing with Allen. He's either trying to get this thing done early, or the longer you can extend him, he starts to have issues. So I guess that's just the million-dollar question here. I think he's going to have a lot of success going out there using his wrestling and grinding up against Carl Roberson. Carl Roberson, again, we know that the blueprint's there. Get the takedowns, outgrapple this guy. He should be able to do exactly that. But if he doesn't get that first-round finish, if he doesn't get this finish in a round and a half, you know, I, 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 and, and especially, you know, he's at Sanford MMA now. 
And when you look at that Sean Strickland fight, he thinks he's a striker. You know, he wants to strike. He wants to test out his, his newfound striking. And it's the bad game plan which results in him getting knocked out. If he comes in here against Carl Roberson and he wants to strike, he wants to show off this new flashy striking and all this work he's been doing at Sanford MMA and he takes that striking approach, that's allowing Carl Roberson to have his best success. But if you go out there with this grapple, 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 take this guy down, search for the submission, again, that's the blueprint that's already been written for us. So I would have to say that Brandon Allen should be able to follow it, should be able to get this fight to the ground, should be able to look for those grappling exchanges, and hopefully get a submission. And so if you want to look at it from, from the prop standpoint of that happening, uh, the under two and a half minus 160, like it. Brandon Allen, win or lose, is aiming for these under two and a halves. Either he's going to get you to the, the ground, he's going to put a beat on you, maybe finds that submission, or at least puts you in a compromising position and forces a TKO. If he doesn't, he is going to burn himself out trying to do that and then leave himself vulnerable in the latter half of the fight. So that under two and a half at minus 160, not bad. The Allen by submission is plus 175. I did look very briefly at the Allen by TKO. It's like plus 850 or something crazy. Yeah. And he does show a lot of submissions. And I mean, when see, when you look at Carl Roberson, three losses, never been knocked out, been submitted three times. So uh, wh why would this be the first guy to knock him out? But it's more than that. It's that if Allen can't get the submission on the ground, but he can mount him, or he can flatten him out, take his back and flatten him out, or he can trap an arm, or he can just keep punching away and force the ref to, to, to come in here and stop the fight, then it would be a TKO, right? But you could also see Carl Robeson taking a few and giving up the submission. So uh, regardless, you would probably just look to that Allen inside the distance, if anything. And the way the fight, uh, the prop I feel most confident about it's just that under two and a half minus 160. Uh, I think it's a good point that you brought up regarding the TKOs, especially with fighters that are able to be so dominant on the ground, right? The, the one the example that truly comes to mind for me is uh, Ovin St. Pru against Alonzo Menafield. And even though he knocked him out on the feet there, a lot of people are just like, take the sub prop, right? He's not going to knock out Alonzo Menafield. And I think the KO prop was like plus 600, plus 700. And my reasoning behind that was what you just said about Brendan Allen. Like, what if he takes him down, dominates him on the ground? The submission doesn't show itself, but it just goes out there and TKOs. And so at plus 825, which is what I saw the line at, I think it's worth a little bit of a dabble, but I'm actually seeing it the other way. I, I, I do agree with you, the under two and a half, that's probably the way to go here as we'll probably get a finish. Minus 160, slightly chalky, but I think both guys have high upside for getting a finish here. I think it's Robertson that actually ends up knocking him out. Now, Brendan Allen, 37% takedown accuracy rate. The only guy he's successfully taken down in the UFC, Kevin Holland. The only, who just has dog shit takedown defense to begin with. Now, uh, Carl Roberson, obviously 50% takedown defense rate himself, so he doesn't have the greatest takedown defense, let alone. But I think a lot of people have this bad taste in their mouth about Carl Roberson considering all the debacle and shenanigans that he had to deal with with uh, Marvin Vittori, right? The whole viral video that went out there that just put him in a bad light, made him seem like he was a scared little bitch and stuff like that. Everybody just started shitting on Carl Roberson. Everybody was on Marvin Vittori's side. And then he goes in there into the cage with Marvin Vittori and then gets smashed the way that he did. So a lot of these people are just like, you know, why are we backing Carl Roberson anymore? But this is a guy, you know, only a couple of fights ago that was minus 115 going into a fight with uh, Glover Teixeira, right? Like that we do have this perception of Carl Roberson and we do have this affirmation that he can be a solid fighter. If he can stuff a couple of takedowns here from Brendan Allen, who I don't think is a great wrestler, keep this on the feet and, and, and get to work with the leg kicks and eventually try to knock him out. And that's kind of the approach that I'm taking here. So I see that you're on Allen, that you think he gets him to the ground and probably submits him or, or it finishes him that way. I'm going to go the opposite side. I think Roberson manages to keep this fight on the feet and plus 335 for Roberson by KO. Ooh, that looks nice to me. Go ahead. You're, you had something you want to say. 
Yeah, so the last thing is that you're probably just going to want to wait for the weigh-ins as well. Because the yes. problem that people are mad yeah. at him is that the first Vittori fight is kids due to COVID. So, like, the whole event scrap, not his problem, right? The second yeah. time, it's fight week, and he pulls out with illness. Now, yeah. a lot of the time that that happens, it's bad weight cut, right? It's, yeah. You're having a bad weight cut. You're coming down to 185 pounds. Something goes wrong during fight week. You get sick. Now he physically makes the fight with, with Vittori. He comes in at 190 pounds, yeah. right? So misses weight by four pounds, looks shit, goes out there. Losing to Vittori, pff, no yeah. big deal, kid. No Cost big deal. Cost of a title shot right now. Yeah, getting submitted in the first round by Marvin Vittori, a little bit different, right? People don't usually go down that road. But uh, at the same time, it's a high-level opponent. It's the, I, I'm saying it's bad weight cut again. Now, yeah. when you consider this is a guy that fought Glover Texera just a couple of years ago, He's a 205-er, you know? And yeah. I would say that Carl Robeson, Carl Robeson made his kickboxing debut, pro kickboxing debut, in France against Jerome LeBanner. Like, like nuts. That's at heavyweight. He kickboxed in glory as a light heavyweight. He made his UFC debut, light heavyweight. Fights Glover Teixeira, a top five guy, currently now fighting for a title, at light heavyweight. Now that he's come down to 185, the weight cuts haven't been kind to him. His cardio doesn't look great. His, his, his takedown defense is, is suspect. You know, one's got to wonder if it's bad weight cut stuff. And now, Vittori, you got to be mad. Man, this guy talked a lot of shit. He said all these things. I got sick on the basis of a bad weight cut. Follows it up with a second bad weight cut. And now I'm to believe that he's going to come into this fight versus Brandon Allen. Good to go. Like, I don't know, man. I don't know. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah. But if, if you're going to pull the trigger, at least wait to weigh in. You That's for know. sure. You don't want to lock it in and then get stuck, right? Exactly. And the line's not going to waver a whole lot to weigh in. I think that it's funny because the, the line is starting to move towards Allen's way. So, like, either way, the, the best thing is to wait for the weigh-ins. And at the same time, you're probably going to get a better line on Carl Robeson the, long that you, the longer that you wait. So, yeah, absolutely great point from you there about uh, the weigh-in for Carl Robeson. Let's see how it plays out for him. Hopefully, he comes in all weight. Hopefully, he looks good. And I think he's probably one of the better dog spots on this card all right let's move on to the next fight here we got dwight grant going up against stefan sekulich you want to talk about inactivity these guys are like the epitome of inactivity in the ufc at this point you got stefan sekulich coming off of a two and a half year long layoff after he made his ufc debut against ramazan amiv came up short in that fight as a lot of people do, especially going up against a guy like Amiv. And then Dwight Grant last time around gave us a great one-round fight against Daniel Rodriguez where he initially rocked and hurt Daniel Rodriguez. And our guy Chris Tyone is like, he's not dead yet. Let's keep going. Daniel Rodriguez comes back into the game and eventually finishes Dwight Grant himself. But amazing performance there. But uh, we, yeah, I think you have to go back to like UFC 230. 237 or 236 to see the last time that Dwight Grant fought against Alan Joban in a very lackluster fight there. But I have so many question marks about Dwight Grant, right? Like, if he goes out there and fights, his volume isn't the greatest. His power is amazing, which is what he usually tries to rely on and tries to get his guys out of there by, by knocking them out. But, like, he's super low volume, and a guy like Stefan Sekulich could absolutely upset him here just off of volume alone. Like, I think he could just, like, stay active enough if he stays away from the big strikes. He could possibly uh, pull off a decision victory of his own here. But I think that power, that explosiveness, and that speed of Dwight Grant is going to be a little bit too much for Sekulich here. And I think he ends up finding that knockout. Sekulich is also coming off a USADA suspension, if I'm not mistaken. And the last guy to come off a USADA suspension that we just saw in the cage 
Mr. Chase Sherman, you saw a clear Ooh. difference Ooh. between what he looked in at wins against like Villanueva and what we looked in uh, this past weekend against Andrzej So yeah, guys coming off that you you saw the suspension probably aren't doing the greatest here. But uh, again, stylistically, this is a fight that Stefan can win if he's able to stay away from the big bombs of Dwight and, and just outpoint him. But I do think that at one point uh, in within those 15 minutes, we see Dw Dwight Grant actually land one of those big bombs. Now in terms of a prop, Obviously, I'd be looking to back uh, Grant to win by knockout here. Uh, and that line is currently sitting at uh, Dwight Grant by knockout plus 120. You know, I'd want a little bit more meat on the bone there, considering I'm not a big Dwight Grant fan myself. Uh, and, and it seems like the public is pretty privy on my approach here, right? You got Dwight Grant opening up minus 270 now down to minus 220 because people are starting to see the same things that I just laid out for you guys. Another uh, spot you can look at is the under 2.5 at minus 130. But I think if a finish transpires here, it's actually going to be Grant and not Sekulic. I'm not completely sold on the knockout power of Sekulic at this point. So I'm going with Grant, knockout plus 120. Again, not as, as nice as I'd like it to be. If we want to go with early, Grant plus 250. I think that's a solid spot. Uh, or even Grant in round 2 plus 475 is not too bad of a spot. But I'm going to say KO plus 120. How about you? Yeah, I almost feel like it's this week's uh, Razak Al Hassan. He's a very talented Ooh, fighter yeah. that is low output, but has a tremendous amount of power. Is a little bit older, but if he touches you, he puts you down. And in his case, you know, the win over Nico Price for Al, Al Hassan, it, like puts him on the map. Is like this guy is a legitimate power puncher. With Dwight Grant, maybe he doesn't quite have that, but even this a split decision loss to Alan Joban, having Joban respect that much power that you have coming your way. But the fight with Daniel Rodriguez. Man, he is a bad referee away from winning that fight. You know, he is he is a hair away from winning that fight. He is and look how good Daniel Rodriguez is kind of progressing and getting better and you know, kind of kind of fighting a decent little footing in the UFC for himself. He's a very entertaining and talented fighter. I think that Dwight Grant has skill, is that he's 36 years old. He was a guy that was training out of American Kickboxing Academy for the longest time, and just you don't really necessarily see a ton of improvements out of him fight to fight. Guys got, got that power. I think he's got something like a 76-inch reach, long reach. You know, if he touches you up, you're going to have a problem. But it's just too low output. This camp, he's currently at a Lions MMA. Does that change anything? Does that make him that much of a better fighter this late in his career? Like, I'm not necessarily sure. If he went in with a game plan of let his hands go and actually throw some more volume, don't think he's got the cardio. You know, you look back at the Zach Otto fight where nothing happens. Yeah. But beyond nothing happening, it's just like he gets taken down by Zach Otto and he tires out. Just hasn't got the go. So I find it hard to jump behind Dwight Grant again at this stage of his career. He comes in here usually as like a sizable enough favorite, and you can't necessarily trust him. So when you look back, you know, I, we talked about Al-Hassan last week because, I mean, as much as we talked about red flags for the entire time, <laughs> and as much as we were like, bad idea, and this guy fooled me three times, you know, three times as the favorite, still, it would, like, he ended up being the pick because it's like as much as I still am, I, I probably won't have him, probably won't happen. But it was a lot of that for me was, yeah, at least in that Manuel Aziz fight, he threw his hand in the first round. He yeah. hurt him in the first round. You know, he did let his hands go. And if he does that in this fight against Jacob Malkoon, then he probably does get that finish. It just doesn't not necessarily the way things play out. And I think about Dwight Grant, I think about the same thing. He almost did knock out Daniel Rodriguez the last time out. If he lets his hands go in this spot as well, he probably knocks out Stefan Sekulic inside of the first round or before he gets tired. It's a non-issue. But it goes back to that bad gut feeling that's like Sekulich is going to try to do to him what Ramazan did to him, you know, just like grind this guy, get him up against the cage, you know, like as much as you can just try to outwork him, avoid the power, 
outwork him, that would be the key to victory. When you look at Seklich's record, it's not it's not rich with name brand opponents. It's not rich with you know the, the highest level of guys. However, losses to David Zawada, who's in the UFC currently, that's the last guy to knock him out, and that fight six years ago. So okay, not 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 terrible. He's lost to Adriano Balbi. Balbi's decent. Balbi's not bad, but also it's like a leg injury in the third round. So not not finished clean at the very least. And then the Ramazan Amiv fight. I mean, pretty difficult task to make your debut against a guy with the style of Amiv. Win or lose, you don't look good against Ramazan Amiv. Uh, it's a tough fight for him. But again, I mean, he gets three rounds under his belt. He gets to make his UFC debut. He gets to make that walk. He gets to feel the octagon jitters. He gets to experience the weight cut and the weigh-ins and all these different things. That's all good for a young fighter. So getting that out of the way, could he come out here and give a better version of himself? Yeah, still only 29 years old. Maybe there's something there. It just seems like he's got the makings of a live underdog. But similar to last week, I just don't know that I've got the cojones to pull the trigger on that live underdog. So I went with instead fight goes the distance at minus or at plus 130. I know it goes kind of against what you were mentioning with Dwight Grant. Dwight Grant probably does clip him and knock him out. I just got a feeling that Dwight Grant's going to try to conserve his energy. He's going to try to apply the long game. Seklich is going to try to grind him up against the cage and try to tire him down over time. But we'll probably get some rounds banked up in this one. So for plus money, that would be the best angle I, I had looking at it. I also saw that Grant by decision was plus 315. But again, do I want to go down that rabbit hole? 13 fights on this card outside of the three Chinese prospects kicking off the card. If I'm looking to pass on a few of these, Sekulich, um, this spot, Sekulich versus Grant, is probably a spot that I'm looking to fade, if anything. There's a lot of times where you see guys plant themselves in a new camp and that camp tries to change the style of that fighter. The the one that comes to mind most recently is Derek Minner going over there to Glory MMA and Fitness and he wins a fucking decision victory in who knows how long, right? <laughs> yeah, Nobody ever yeah. expected that to happen. So yeah. maybe that's something that we see here from Dwight Grant, which is like you're saying, play that long game, play the smart game, conserve your energy, let your power go in spurts and try to get a judge's decision victory here. So yeah, I absolutely see that point in time. Uh, I do want to give a quick shout out to my guy, Nick West here, 200 watch and only 60 likes y'all must have forgot absolutely so please do hit that like and support you boys we do appreciate it all right we let's get to the prelim headliner here we got a fight that was booked a couple months ago i believe between randy brown and alex cowboy Oliveira. every time i talk about cowboy Oliveira, i'll always have to bring up the fact that this guy is the wild card in mma this guy you don't know what you're gonna get from him you can't lay your money down and be like this guy is the lock of the night play because you just don't know what the fuck you're gonna get from him there's instances where you'll get the uh, the Peter Sabata performance, which is a picturesque performance, pretty much just uh, annihilating Peter Sabata from the outside, digging to the body a lot, kicks up the middle, uh, solid strikes from distance, and his cardio. His cardio looked great. But in most fights when he's losing, you see his cardio start to take a fall off a cliff. You see, uh, you know, his striking is just not getting going. His opponents are able to control where the fight is going, and he kind of just plays along with them, uh, doesn't really set the tone himself. But then again, there's fights like the the Max Griffin fight. There's fights like the Peter Sabato fight, like I'm talking about. He has these moments of solid uh, skills and where he looks like a top 10 uh, welterweight. But then there's instances when he just doesn't. And I feel like if he isn't this weekend, Randy Brown is a guy that can go out there and completely expose him. You know, Randy Brown is a guy that we've almost seen grow up in the UFC since he made his debut back in 2015. And he's fought a hell of a lot of different types of competition. Whoever allowed him to sign on the dotted line to fight Vicente Luque last time around should be absolutely fired. That was not a matchup for him to take at that point in his career. He's building a little bit of momentum. And he had finally got a couple, you know, a little bit of a winning streak after he had gotten knocked out by Nico Price in that crazy fashion that he got knocked out in you don't feed him Vicente Luque <laughs> like right away let's get him out there and, and smooth him out like this this cowboy fight 
probably would have been a great fight for him to take after or, or right before that Vicente Luque fight. Like that was a proper step up in pro progression for him. But Vicente Luque went out there and just put on an absolute veterans lesson on him, uh, beat him from pillar to post, eventually finishing him in that second round. Um, I feel like Randy Brown might be the better fighter at distance here. He's obviously going to have about a four inch height advantage. I believe a couple inches uh, on the reach as well. Uh, he looks good with the striking. He looks slightly more technical than Cowboy Oliveira. Oliveira is a little bit wild at times. I think Oliveira has a better jiu-jitsu game, even though we've seen uh, Randy Brown go out there and submit Warley Alves a couple fights ago. That was with Warley Alves completely gassed, completely died, dying by that second round, and he pretty much rolled over and gave up that triangle choke. Um, I do lean Brown here, though. I think he has the better cardio, uh, especially when the fight is going his way. I don't think this one will be going uh, much in Oliveira's way, but I do like um uh randy brown here very little confidence though again because Oliver could absolutely surprise us with a great performance and he could come out here and absolutely starch the kid and randy brown so ultimately i will go with randy brown i'm going to take him to win by decision uh and that line is currently on um, i believe it's uh at plus money right now uh randy brown by decision is plus 225 and i don't mind that even if we want to go with the overs here right i think this is a fight that could uh go uh over for sure over one and a half minus 225 over two and a half minus 125 fight starts round three even is minus 150 i think that's a, a solid spot are you seeing it the way that i'm seeing am i giving randy brown too much credence here how do you feel about it no, I don't think you're giving him enough. I think he's got a chance to go oh. out there and possibly get the finish, actually. Damn. I think with Randy Brown, listen, Randy Brown's been making a ton of improvements. I think you mentioned it best yourself. We've seen him quite literally grow in the UFC. He comes in against Matt Dwyer, Canada's own from BC, <laughs> and is like slight favorite. He loses to Michael Graves, you know, from the Ultimate Fighter status. But it's that Eric Montano fight. He loses the first two rounds against Augusto Montano's brother. Yeah. Loses the first two rounds. Guillotine's him in the third. He was a five to one favorite. It was like this guy is a mega bust. But again, he's one of these hardworking guys. We talked about Molina earlier in the show. If you're going to attend the practices, if you're going to work, you know, with the best guys in the world day in and day out and put in the effort, you're going to make improvements. And man, he made the improvements. His losses are to Bilal Muhammad, Nico Price, Vincente Luque. Okay, well, they're all top 20 guys. Vincente Luque is a top five guy. Nico Price is a fringe 15 guy, or uh, is a fringe 20 guy. Bilal Muhammad is probably a top 15 guy. So as far as losses go, Randy Brown's at least testing himself against some of the best guys out there. The wins, you might think a little bit lackluster, but it's where you see the, the work in progress, the development in progress. Like, he looked lackluster against Mickey Gall, right? But in the third round, it's 1-1, third round. Who wants to fight more? Gut check performance for both guys. Which young fighter is going to take a step forward in their career? It's Randy Brown. It's Randy Brown with the gas tank. It's Randy Brown with the will. It's Randy Brown with the desire, right? The Nico Price fight, crazy position to get knocked out from, but he does score the takedown over Nico Price fine and good it's knocking out brian barbarena putting the pressure on him and see this is where randy brown's figuring out his length he's six foot three he's got a massive reach on him right he stays to the outside and uses that jab he'll bust you up he has decent power in his hands but he eventually just hits you hurts you when you get hurt you start to get fatigued when you get fatigued you make mistakes when you make mistakes randy brown capitalizes knocking out brian barbarena ain't no easy task lesser men have failed to do it right better men have failed to do it He's been in there with a lot of tough guys. If anything, he's a durable guy. So the knockout win, it was like, okay, cool. He's going the right direction. The Worley Alves fight, he submits Worley Alves. What? Now, you did mention it. A uh, bit of a weird submission considering he just tired Worley Alves out. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, uh, fatigue makes a coward out of all of us. Uh, <laughs> similar to we've seen uh, the great Vieira, Rodolfo Vieira, get submitted by Anthony Hernandez. He, he's tired. 
but but it actually goes back to what I'm saying is that like he's breaking these guys down. He can use his striking. He can chip away at you. He can tire you out. As much as I love talking shit about Worley Alves and writing him off, hey, dude actually went out there and beat Manuel Aziz. You know, he shows that yeah. he is dangerous. He's got a submission win over Colby Covington. He fought Kamaru Usman to a decision. Was not competitive, but still he's been there, done that. So he's not an easy opponent. You see Randy Brown heading in the right direction, and then his manager gets way too greedy and accepts a fight with Vincente Luque because it was slightly better money than a different fight. Like, come on, man. Like, not, not a good point for him to take a fight like that in his career, but he does. Comes out on the wrong end of it, gets gets a couple rounds in, experiences it. It's still an experience. He's still only thirty, you know. He's not shop worn. Uh, a knockout loss like that isn't going to take that much out of him. But it's it's up for him to just get motivated by that, get back in the gym. Randy Brown's never lost two in a row for a reason because he he gets back in there. He's motivated. Whereas Cowboy Oliveira, yeah, you know, we didn't watch him grow in the UFC. He came to the UFC. He was pretty dope right off the get go. You know, he got he's up two rounds against Gilbert Burns in his debut. Yeah. and got armbarred in the third. But it was just like, dope, man. This guy's in intriguing. You know, he's a huge lightweight, huge lightweight. But somewhere around the line, couldn't really make the weight anymore. Moves up to 170. And then somewhere down the line, the performances are just not as good as they used to be. Now, mind you, he's another guy that ends up fighting the best guys in the world. But Gunnar Nelson just blows through him. The Mike Perry fight. Mike Perry's a street fighter from Michigan. Man. Come on. Yeah. You know, yeah. Michigan or Florida, whatever you want to Flint. consider him from, right? <laughs> Flint, Flint, Michigan, and they're like, Clearwater Springs, Florida, or whatever. Right? Like, well, anyways, it doesn't matter. Uh, Mike Perry is who he is, but him losing that fight was like shit. I gave Felder a pass because Felder's a lightweight who took the fight on really short notice. But losing to Mike Perry is a bad signal for you in your career, right? And yeah. I, I just, I didn't think. I think it was him not being motivated. Guys, nine kids, seven different baby mamas. He's getting older. The weight cuts aren't quite going as good as they used to. Like, there's a lot that you can kind of not not love about him, right? The loss to Nicholas Dalby out where, right? Now, Max Griffin, I didn't think he won that fight. He wins a split, but it's a really close, close fight. fight. Very close fight. Could have gone either way. Griffin just waited too long to kind of get that that grappling going and tire him out a little bit. Peter Sabota fight, you know, it's Peter Sabota, so you take the win, but not the highest quality at this stage in the game. And then that Shavgat uh, Rachmanov, that, that's a favorite that didn't end up being the mush of the week. Everybody liked Rachmanov. Yeah. Everybody liked him. Everybody had the same narrative. Cowboy Oliveira seems half checked out. He shows up to that fight, he gets submitted in the first round. And that's why I'm liking this Randy Brown by submission prop. I think Cowboy Oliveira's always had bad cardio. I think the later these fights go, it's not that he's not BJJ Black Belt. It's not that his grappling's not good. It's that the longer these fights go, he definitely gets tired. And when he gets tired, he starts to make mistakes. It's similar to Walt Worley Alves. You can have great grappling, but once you get tired, you're giving it up. And Randy Brown just seems to break these guys down. Hurt these guys. Use that length. Use that reach. Get the takedown. Wear on you. Pressure you. And then that should open up the submission. So looking at props again, this is a would be more of a punt play because it's a big, big line. Right? It's plus 550 Randy Brown by submission. Wow. You know, he has submitted a guy like Alves. He does have decent grappling. He's worked a lot on his grappling day in and day out and, and as far as camp goes. So that is a path for him, right? And with Cowboy Oliver, he just got submitted by a, a debuting UFC fighter. He's 33. His be best days are behind him. He hasn't looked overly impressive. It just seems like it's certainly a possibility. But I know you love those round three props, right? There so go, baby. Randy Brown round there two is seven to one. Randy Brown round three is 10 to one. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, you break this guy down, tire him out, fatigue him out. And uh, we've, dude, we've seen it with Calvo Oliver. I've seen him tap a few times where it's like, if he, if he was, uh, 
if his lungs had a little more air, he'd fight it a little bit more. But he's so yeah. tired, he's just like, <laughs> all right, you got me, man. Like He just kind of rolls over and calls it a noma. So I think Brown gets the win. If we're trying to chase some of those nice plus money props, I think it's at least interesting to see that Randy Brown by submission or furthermore, Randy Brown by like a second or third round finish. Yeah, shout out to my guy JRMMA here saying Randy Brown round three, 22 to one submission round three. Book? Oh, uh, submission round three. Submission yeah. round yeah. three. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like if you guys have access to those books that give you the round end method as yeah. one package deal, I think that's a solid play there. So shout out to my guy JRMMA for that one. All right. We're getting right to the main card here. And I do want to remind you guys tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern, Cody is back on the channel with me, Dan Levy from Best Fight Picks slash Half the Battle, and my guy Brett Abley from Daily Fan MMA. We got a star started crew for you guys tomorrow night to break down the fights one last time for you guys with the weigh-ins in mind obviously alex Oliveira is somebody that we want to see on the on the scales uh carl roberson is another guy we want to see on the scales let's see how that possibly changes our perspective on the fights now that we finally see them about 24 hours before they're supposed to step into the cage and fight each other so make sure you guys join us tomorrow night 9 p.m eastern right here on my channel it's going to be a banger all right let's get to the main card first and foremost we got anthony smith going up against the young up-and-comer jimmy crute here you got minus 190 on crute and uh plus 165 on Lionheart smith and this is another one where i played that game you know I can't believe this motherfucker is only 32 years old. Anthony Smith is only 32 coming into his 51st pro MMA fight. Apparently, he has a bunch, you know, that aren't on record, according to him. So maybe he's up into that 60 or 70 mark. Uh, but uh, he's fallen on rough times outside of that uh, submission victory he had over Devin Clark last time around. We were pretty much writing off Anthony Smith, right? Going into that Devin Clark fight, everybody's like, look at his body language look at the way he's competing he has no takedown defense he has no urgency to get back to his feet he doesn't even have the urgency to throw up a submission so obviously devin clark should be able to run through him right haha <laughs> stupid us trying to trust devin clark to pull off a victory for us and that does not transpire uh he does end up getting choked out there so good bounce back win for anthony smith but i don't think it tells us much that we didn't already know right devin clark has good wrestling gets the takedown anthony smith has decent jiu-jitsu when he's able to go up against a guy like devin clark he gets the submission now you're Funny a guy, uh, a young upstart here in Jimmy Crute who wants to make a name for himself, right? He has only one loss on his record that Peruvian necktie lost to Misha Sirkinov. And I feel like a lot of people are ready to start throwing uh, Crute under the bus after he got tapped out by that. But man, me and you both know how high level Sirkinov's jujitsu game is. Say what you want about his chin, but his jujitsu is next level, which is why he's able to get the Peruvian necktie on not just one guy, he has multiple on his record. Um, but Jimmy Crude is a high-level jiu-jitsu player himself. He showed it in the next fight against Mihal Oleg Shajuk. Say what you want about Oleg Shajuk. He was still able to go out there and get the submission victory. And then he just bombs on Modestus Bukowskis last time around. So great win for him there. But now this is the true test. This is a gatekeeper fight. This is where Anthony Smith decides whether Jimmy Crude should enter the top 10 or remain as this just bottom dweller in the light heavyweight division. I think he uses his jiu-jitsu and his wrestling to its best abilities and grinds Anthony Smith out here. Now, I've kind of been tossing up in a round does he finish him or does he just grind him out over three rounds and i kind of give the benefit of the doubt later in this week now to anthony smith's durability and his ability to just survive right it took until round four of glover to share pounding his teeth and to eventually finish him and then obviously uh there was the fight after that where you just got decision by alexander rakic over three rounds I think it's going to play out similar to the Rackage fight. We might see Jimmy Crude a little bit more offensively minded. Then we saw Rackage, who seemed to be comfortable just playing that fight in the full guard. 
I think we might see crude go for it here and there, but ultimately I don't think he ends up finishing him. So what I'm actually going to be leaning for here is the over one and a half minus 185 hella chalky, but I, I fully see the way that these guys are matched up with each other, that this will go over the seven and a half minute mark fight starts around three, even money. Minus 115. I think that's a very good spot, too. And if we want to get even more specific with it, Crute to win by decision is um, plus 285. I don't think that that's a bad spot. Earlier this week, I think he was going to finish him. But as this week is starting to go on, I'm starting to think that uh, Smith is just going to, you know, gut it out. And uh, Crute will obviously, uh, you know, get the control time, get the top pressure, get the work from on top, and take home a judge's decision. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, I got to go the other way. I'm a big Jimmy Crute fan. Right. Uh, yeah, I like what he brings to the table for sure. He's only 25 years old, but here's a kid that's already, I think he just got awarded his BJJ black belt, and he's, you know, kickboxing under uh, Sam Greco, my boy, out in Australia. Like, he's really putting it all together and, you know, adding those wrinkles to his game, adding that skill to his game. The one thing that I am worried about is that I don't know that he's got great cardio. So he's going yeah. out there and he's finishing guys very quickly. He seems to be a tad, you know, hyper-aggressive, maybe a little bit over-aggressive. And I think that's what's going to tire him out. When you look at his run so far, I mean, Dana White's Contender Series fight, it's a first-round finish. His debut against Paul Craig, my God, talk about a sloppy fight. Like, it's he gets reversed multiple times. He is very, very tired. But again, I mean, he's fighting a BJJ Black Dog, Paul Craig. And in the third round, he's the one that prevails. He's the one that – he attacked that Kimura like six times. I'm like, what are yeah. you doing going for the Kimura again? And he taps him with it. It's like, shit, he's making adjustments live on the fly. Getting three rounds under your belt, it's like, that's good for him. He needs to get extended. He needs to go deeper into fights so that he can improve. And then since then, there's been there's been nothing. Knocks out Sam in the first, submitted by Misha in the first. He was he almost TKO'd me, dude. He's on top of him. Yeah. He's raining down the punishment. Then he gets swept in Peruvian necktie. But anyways, it's in the first. The Michael uh, Alexichuk fight, it's in the first. And then Modestas Bukowski's last time out, it's in the first. So the one thing with Anthony Smith is he's quite literally made it an entire career on taking a Homer Simpson style beating in the first couple rounds and coming back. And what I mean by that is like, he is down big time. He lost the first two rounds to Andrew Sanchez, but he gets him in the third. The Hector Lombard fight, he gets cooked the first two rounds, takes him in the third. Yeah. You know, uh, the Volkan Uzdemir fight, he loses the first two rounds, takes him in the third. Went five rounds with John Jones. Alexander Gustafson wins the first two, loses the third. Momentum is going the other way now. Boom. Subs him in the fourth. So th th that is, in fact, very much an issue as far as being a Jimmy Crute supporter in this spot is that I do think he wins this fight. But if he doesn't go out there and get an early finish and this fight ends up going three rounds, we haven't seen him go three rounds very often. And when the last time we did see it, a couple years ago now, he was out of it, out of sorts against Paul Craig, right? So yeah, Anthony Smith's got a lot that he can offer him. Anthony Smith's had 50 pro fights, but he's only 32 years old. Is he shop-worn? Is he still young enough? By the numbers, he's entering the prime of his career. But as far as looking at his record, he's taken a lot of damage. You know, you mentioned he went four rounds of Glover. He went five rounds of Glover. You know, he got finished early in the fifth round. But Glover was apologizing to him in there, being like, <laughs> dude, I am sorry that you're going to have to go home after this and introduce your family to the new Anthony because you're never going to be the same, man. I'm really sorry about this. And he's just like, it's okay. He just gets part of the up. job. <laughs> Very tough to watch, but it was like, holy shit. Then Alexander Rakic, what was tough to watch about that fight is a 15-minute fight, and Anthony Smith landed nine significant strikes. He got dropped, got outstruck, not a very great fight. He, he just didn't even land anything. And then Devin Clark, it's Devin Clark. He hits him with a triangle choke like, okay, great. He probably won't hit Jimmy Crew with that triangle. 
I think Krug gets the takedowns if he wants them. And, and beyond that, Anthony Smith's got like a shell up defense. He's done it multiple times. He did it against Hector Lombard. He actually did it against Leonardo Guimaraes back in the day. If UFC debut, it might be, or like after the strike force bio stuff, and he came back. Uh, he wins the first two rounds and almost gets finished in the third with his shell up defense. But that same shell up defense against Glover, just like you, you take a lot of damage. I think Jimmy Crew's strong. I think Jimmy Crew will go out there. He can strike with him for a little bit, let that overhand right go, hit him, hurt him. Anthony Smith tends up to shell up against the cage. It's when you get him to the ground, he goes to like a, a, a four, you know, he goes to like his hands and knees almost, like a wrestling stance without standing up and just allows himself to just take damage. I think that Jimmy Crute probably goes out there and does lay it on him. So I, I did have to go the other way. I ended up going with Jimmy Crute. I got Jimmy Crute by TKO, which is plus 170. And I, I think that he just wears on him and hopefully takes him out. Hopefully in the first, get it done before you get tired. But if not in the first, in the second round, let the hands go, hurt this guy standing, peel him to the ground, peel him to the ground, beat him on the ground, and just make him work. Anthony Smith's got a cozy job commentating right now. You know, he's fought the best guys in the world. He's generally given a good account of himself, but he has taken damage. He's got 50 fights. He's fought at a, a many different weight classes. You know, I don't actually believe he's really a 205er. I think he's best at 185. There's just a lot. And, and again, come on, I always bring back the fact that he, uh, he has a greasy split decision over a home invader who smokes a meth before breaking <laughs> into his house. So there are limitations to his game, right? And I, I think that Jimmy Crude, even without the meth, is just going to get him to the ground and, and work him over a little bit. So uh, I, got, I got Crude. Do I, as far as like, you know, this is a prop show, so I have to take a prop. So I'm going to take that Crude by uh, TKO at plus 170. But, I mean, listen, I would probably just rather it crude straight up. It is a tough fight. It's, a, it's definitely a step-up fight for him. And, again, if you like betting fights for the live betting purpose, um, yeah. I can see Anthony Smith coming back. Like, he might, Jimmy Crew might run through him in the first round, and, you know, Smith survives. That's decent. You're going to get a good plus-money price going into the second. If you're going into the third and it's 1-1, you live bet Anthony Smith. If he's going into the third and it's 2 nothing crude, recruits keeling over, huffing and puffing, it's a punt play at that point. But, uh, but again, you're probably going to get a much better – live bet price on it than this pre-bet price. Dare I put out the plus 1875 on Smith to win around three. Dare yeah, I do it, sure. Cody Softic. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's one of those spots that you'd look for, for sure. I mean, for again, sure. I think the crazier things have happened. This fight looks like it could play out that way. For sure, for sure. All right. I'm glad that we're both on the crude side, but let's see if this fight does get, uh, you know, stretch out into that third round, how his cardio looks and if he's able to pull the victory out. So, all right. Next up, we got Chris Weidman taking on Uriah Hall. This is a rematch of a fight that I believe took place in Ring of Combat. I believe that's the co company over there in that New York, uh, New Jersey area. And that fight took place way back in September of 2010. So we're talking about over 11 years removed or close to 11 years removed since that fight originally took place. Chris Weidman did end up winning that fight via KO in the first round. Uh, and they've obviously had a very different path to the UFC and different paths within the UFC. Obviously, Chris Weidman achieving the, the middleweight title a couple years ago over Anderson Silva, defeating the mythical Anderson Silva, the way that he did and then uriah hall having to make his way to the ultimate fighter and ultimately losing to kelvin gaslam in the finals um th this is an interesting fight to me right like you got minus 125 minus 130 ish for weidman you see the line starting to code the the weidman way and uh, you know if you watch the last two fights uh, alone you you kind of understand why right uriah hall notoriously a slow starter doesn't really have the greatest amount of volume at times and then he starts to pick his uh actions up later and more often than not he's getting bailed out with his with his power right just ask Bevan Lewis, just ask Christoph Jotko, and then obviously Anderson Silva last time around. Don't forget, in that, in that 
fight. He dropped the first two rounds to Silva as Silva was just a more active fighter at that point in time. Not saying it was by a huge margin or anything like that. And it was more so Uriah Hall's fault for not throwing as much punches as he, as he should have. Uh, but you'd think that his time down at Fortis MMA would have had him looking a little bit better, even though he came out on the winning end in that fight. He, he, his jab looked fucking amazing against Antonio Carlos Jr. whenever that fight was vertical and uh, Jr. didn't have him clinched up or have his back or anything like that. Um, very close fight too, right? A lot of uh, people thought that Carlos Jr.'s control and the minimal amount of damage he did should have outweighed the damage that Uriah Hall did. It is what it is. Uriah Hall gets the victory there. And then Chris Weidman last time around, right? Goes one one and one in the first two rounds against Akhmedov and then pulls out the decision in the third round. It's a good win for him there. But I think a lot of people are already starting to forget about the Chris Weidman chin issues, which I do think is still a big, big concern. Like when you see him getting hurt in those, those earlier fights when he was getting finished, like it wasn't like the craziest shots that was putting him out or making him wobbly or anything like that. And something that we can kind of almost guarantee that Uriah Hall has in the majority of his shots is power. The guy has a lot of power in his shots, whether he's moving backwards, whether he's moving forwards, whether he's throwing spinning shit, flying shit, or just regular technical shit he's gonna land on you and he's gonna hurt you and i think that uh th this this might have the feel of you know when you're holding a Derek brunson ticket against kevin holland get this fight to the ground the longer you're on the feet you're probably gonna get knocked the fuck out that's what every wideman better is probably gonna be thinking this weekend but the difference between the brunson bet and the wideman bet is you're getting plus 150 on brunson and here you're getting minus 130 on wideman I don't understand the supreme confidence that people seem to have here on Weidman. I don't want to touch this fight whatsoever. The only thing that I would touch is the KO prop on Uriah Hall here at plus 250 or closing in on that plus 250 range. I do think that Weidman's chin is still a huge liability here. I don't think that he'll be able to handle the power of Uriah Hall. But then how much can we truly trust uh, Uriah Hall to throw enough strikes out there to find that knockout blow? There's just so many question marks in this fight. Both guys are 36. They're on their last legs inside the UFC. Chris Weidman, for some reason, believes that he can make a title run at this point. You're not beating Israel Adesanya, first and foremost. You're not beating Robert Whitaker. You're not getting past the top five, top seven in this division, maybe even the top 10. But I don't even think he gets past Uriah Hall here. And I'm, I have very little confidence just due to the lack of volume and output we see from Uriah. But I do think he still possesses the power to knock out a guy who has the chin of uh, Chris Weidman, which I truly question still at this point in time. So I'm going Uriah Hall. I'm going knockout. I'm not entirely sure what's round. This could also be another third round prop where Chris Weidman starts to slow down and Uriah Hall, when his big finishes do happen, they do tend to happen later in the fight. So maybe you you try to zone in or or hone in on the Uriah Hall round three, which is currently um, plus, wow, plus 800. That's it. Yeah, I wouldn't even take a stab there, to be honest. I'd rather just take the KO prop at plus 250 just so it covers me over the whole 15 minutes. But yeah, I like Hall here. Again, not with the craziest confidence. Um I'm questioning the level of confidence people have in Chris Weidman. Uh, if they think that he can just grind him up for you know 10 out of the 15 minutes and then stay conscious enough for the other five minutes, then okay, I get it. He's the more active fighter. It makes absolute sense. But I just don't trust that chin, man. I think that Uriah Hall will do a good enough job of you know finding the chin at some point in these 15 minutes and putting him out. How do you feel about this one? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, Chris Weidman's got this confidence about him that he's going to get the UFC title back. He's going to go on another oh, run. But yeah, I love that's the guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude, listen, I love the guy too, but he's kind of got that delusion about him. Like, he's always thought about that. He's always talked like that. Even when he took that one-off fight with Dominic Reyes at 205 pounds, yeah, he was he was very adamant that he was going to win the UFC's light heavyweight title and how he would beat John Jones and his wrestling is so good and this and that. Like, 
you know, I often think like, where, where does he get it from? But I also remember his dad publicly went on record to say, he's still my boy after, <laughs> after the Luke Rockhold fight. And I think yeah. maybe his old man's delusional too. Um, listen, how could you not like Chris Weidman and the things that he's done for the sport? He was supposed to be the, the, the middleweight goat, greatest of all time. He beats Anderson Silva not once, but twice. And both the ways he does it, knock it knocks him out the first time. Second time he shatters his leg. It's like, oh, it's a passing of the torch moment. But it felt a lot like the Machida era. You know, it didn't last very long. It seemed like he was the best guy in the world, but he just failed to really follow it up with anything. In fact, he beat Leota Machida in a five-round decision. Then he lost the first round. I didn't think he looked all that good in that fight. And then, uh, and then beyond that, he beats an old man, Vitor Belfort. And then it's been just downhill since then. I know people speculate the injuries. He's had neck surgery. He's had a bad knee. He's had, you know, a lot of wear and tear. I know a lot of people speculate USADA and that, he has it similar to an Anthony Pettis or a Johnny Hendricks or a Hedden Burrell. That same time period of the best guys at that time haven't really followed through. Or call it just he's fighting the absolute creme to the creme best guys in the world, which he is. He just doesn't look all that good. He's taking a lot of damage and he's fatiguing. Luke Rockhold, you know, it's competitive early. The longer it goes, he gets tired and Luke Rockhold ends up TKO him. And he, he took a lot of damage in that fight. It should have been stopped a lot earlier, but they let it continue and he got banged up. Yoel Romero, man, he's winning. He's winning the fight in the third round, flying knee. Talk about a lot of damage, you know that 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 changes a guy. Gegard Mousasi, he's winning the early portion of that fight. That series of knees he eats to the face, man, that that change a guy. Jacare Souza, he's winning the fight, but in the third round, he's dead dog tired, and Jacare just starts winging bombs and pressuring him. And as soon as Jacare lands on him, he topples over. It's a lot of damage. It's another repetitive theme of him getting tired. When he gets tired, he starts to get hit. When he starts to get hit, he's not taking these shots all that well. The Dominic Reyes fight, it's at 205. Reyes not necessarily the biggest power puncher going, but didn't matter, you know? This first time he really touched Weidman in that fight, Chris toppled over. But one thing, and then Omar Yachmedov fight, you know, he was so gassed. Like, it's like, yeah. you got to think, maybe it was the wrestling-heavy approach that tired him out. But like, when you look back at all the other fights, it's the same thing. I mean, he just gets tired in there. Omari is not able to take advantage of that situation. Those guys were. Hall, again, traditionally, he's a guy that comes through. Ask Musasi, ask Jotko, ask these guys that hang a little too long. You talk about the Anderson Silva fight. See, that one's interesting to me. So Uriah Hall is a huge Anderson Silva fan. And yeah. it's a crazy moment to be fighting your idol. And he's very super tentative. And Hall has fought tentatively in his career before. But he's super tentative in that fight. And Juan's got to imagine if it's like, fuck me, I'm fighting Anderson Silva. I'm really going to hurt this guy. I'm just going to take my time, five rounds. <clears throat> I'll, put, I'll put him away when I need to put him away. And he does. And as soon as he puts him away, he cries. He sits there with him. And he cries and he tells him, you're a hero, man. Love you. What better way to honor this man to take out fucking Chris Weidman, you know? Go out there and get some vengeance for Anderson Silva. You like him so much. <laughs> but you know what? Daniel Cormier fought Anderson Silva at UFC 200. Walk in the park win. Walk yeah. in the park win. And looked awful. I mean looked awful. And Anderson Silva was taking the final short note. Or it was a short note fight. But yeah. regardless, it's like, what the hell happened? You know what? DC was fighting Anderson Silva, kind of a crazy spot. UFC 200 took it easy on him. The best actual uh, notice of that is Anderson Silva versus Derek Brunson. Derek Brunson was coming off all first-round victories. Knocked out Ed Herman in the first round. Knocked out uh, Sam Alvey in the first round. Knocked out Uriah Hall in the first round. Bum-rushed Whitaker, hurt Whitaker in the first round, and then got knocked out. Fought Anderson Silva and just stood there and stared. Ended up losing a split decision. Bullshit split decision. Uh, it was a unanimous. Bullshit unanimous decision. Brunson should have won, but it was like, there's this aura of like, holy shit, dude, I'm fighting Anderson Silva. I think that's what happened to Hall. So if Hall stares at Weidman, it's not going to go good. 
if Hall goes out there and can stuff these takedowns and make him work and tire him out a little bit, he's going to be live in that third round. And then I know you love those third round props. This one's only eight to one because like the bookies yeah. think of the same thing too. They're <laughs> like, okay, Chris Weidman and his Uriah Hall. As you mentioned, Hall likes to get it done late, spectacular fashion. Weidman likes to blow it late in spectacular fashion. So writing's on the wall a little bit there, but uh, yeah, I'd have to agree. I think Hall's just got to make sure he keeps his fight standing, and beyond that, he's got to make him work. The one thing that is concerning, and it's the reason why I'm not going to want to be heavily, heavily invested in here, is talk about an awesome staff for Chris Weidman. He's had 16 fights in the UFC. He's taken down all 16 guys at least once. Wow. That's pretty fucking impressive. You know what I mean? Lesio Sakara five times, Jesse Bonkfeld once, Tom Lawler once, Maya four times, Munoz twice, Anderson Silva once, Anderson Silva once, Michita five times. Vitor once, Rockhold three times, Yo Romero once, Gegar Mousasi four times, Kelvin Gaston seven times, Jacques Array once, Dominic Reyes once, Omar Akhmedov five times. He's taken on two of fivers and gotten them down. He's taken on Olympians like Yo Romero and gotten them down. He's taken on 16 different men. That's a lie because he took down Anderson Silva. Same guy. You know what I'm saying. He's fought 16 yeah. times in the UFC. Win or lose, short finish, full 15 minutes. One thing is trial and true about him. He's scored a takedown in all these fights. He goes out there against Uriah Hall, scores a takedown. Uriah Hall's not getting back up. Uriah Hall's probably not getting back up. He doesn't got a, got a great get-up game. You know, similar to the Antonio Carlos Jr. fight, when Carlos Jr. got him down, he just took his back and controlled him. It was the second and the third round when Carlos Jr. can't get the fight to the ground. That's when he starts using that jab. That's when he starts busting him up. Same thing here. And, you know, we talked about live betting opportunities. This is another one. Wyman probably does go out there and win that first round. He probably does su successfully get the takedown. He's got an entire history of it. By the way, Uriah Hall's not the best wrestler Chris Wyman's ever fought. This fight probably does hit the mat in the first round. It's in the second and the third round. If Wyman gets tired the same way he did against Akhmedov, and Hall can stay to the outside, stick him with the jab, make him work, smash him with a flying knee up the middle, hit him with a, hit him with a wheel kick, hit him with, hit him with some flashy technique he doesn't see coming – then he can make it interesting. Then he can change the course of, to his favor. But it's going to be a tough one in that first round. You can't discredit Weidman and his ability to get the fight to the ground. It's whether he can consistently do that for two of the three rounds. And even fights that Weidman's up to, he doesn't just lose the third round. He gets finished he gets in the scorched. third round, right? That, that's the problem, right? Yeah. Otherwise, Weidman up 2018 going into the third? Yeah, plausible. I think it probably does happen. It's He's very untrustworthy in that third. But if you could live bet that because he looks shaky going into the third, but he's up two. You're going to get a huge plus money price tag on on uh, Uriah Hall, and uh, I think he's live for a finish at some point. Yeah, if you have the option to cash out after round two with Weidman, I'd say just take the money, even if it's just partial winnings. Just just don't even bother with that third round. Who knows what the what the fuck's going to happen there? All right, we're on the cusp of the three title fights here, but our guy in the chat, Wail Al Gadban, brings up a good point here. Mortal Kombat drops tomorrow. Are you Team Sub Zero or are you Team Scorpion? I've always been a Sub Zero guy. Well, you you ever follow Mortal Kombat? Will, yeah, of ever? course. I'm actually uh, I actually like Scorpion. That was you my like guy. Scorpion. Ah, yeah, Sub Zero is my guy. <laughs> right, right. I understand. Everybody loves Sub Zero. The video games. He was like the more popular character. He had like the better combo set. He's you know better in the movie. And I don't know why. Just like these little things that like stick with you when you're a kid. But when I was a kid, when he'd be like, "Get over here!" and he'd fucking fire that thing, and it would just dice you down. There was nothing cooler than that, man. So he was always my guy. <laughs> also, like I don't know, all the other kids obviously wanted to be the blue ninja. And there was the readily available yellow ninja, so yeah. that's who I ended up taking. You know, I'm a fan of mid carders. Your boy Sub Zero, he's co-main eventing. He's main eventing. Scorpio, not quite much. He's a mid carder <laughs> kind of guy, like badass Billy Gunn, my guy. 
I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be grabbing that movie tomorrow and probably watch it tomorrow in anticipation for UFC 261. So I can't wait for that. All right, let's get to the championship title fights. This is what everybody wants to hear about. This is what everybody is here for. First and foremost, we got the flyweight title on the line. We got Valentina Shevchenko going up against Jessica Andrade, who made a successful debut at flyweight by dispatching of Ketlin Chukagian late in that first round with a beautiful body shot that just absolutely cripples her, uh, and, and then follows up with some great ground and power to finish her off there. So good win for Andrade. And it just tells you the state of the flyweight division when you can go in there, get a quick win, and vault into a title shot because Valentina has pretty much just wiped the rest of the, the division out of, out of place, right? There really isn't anybody else at 125 that seems to be a clear contender. And you have Jessica Andrade, former strawweight champion, somebody that you can bank on to, you know, be exciting. And you just vault her in this fight against Shevchenko. But I think she's just technically outskilled here, man. Shevchenko is definitely the GOAT at this division for a reason. It's very hard to put her away. Uh, it's very hard to, you know, get your own game going off unless, of course, you're Amanda Nunes. But you're dealing with somebody that's like, what, eight, inch short, eight inches shorter uh, than Nunes here with uh, Jessica Andrade, is going to be coming in at 5-1. So I believe uh, Shevchenko will have either a 4 or 5-inch height advantage here, obviously a reach advantage too. But I think it's ultimately just going to be her technical game that just uh, flusters uh, Jessica Andrade. Now, the only changes and progresses that we've seen in Andrade's game since she's like kind of burst onto the scene like she just moves her head a little bit better. That that's really about it. Everything else is the same. She wings forward. She throws wide looping shots. More often than not, she's able to get the knockout if she if she's not able to. Then she gets like pieced up for for fifteen or twenty five minutes and then loses a decision. Um, she I will say this: she was coming on strong in that Rose Namajunas fight the second time around. In that third round, she's really busting up Rose at the end of that fight. Uh, and I'm not sure if it was due to Rose's lack of cardio. She's always seemed to be a fighter that has solid cardio, but it seemed like Andrade was starting to land on her late in that fight. Unfortunately for her. Uh, Andrade still ends up coming up on the losing end there. Great performance against Catelyn Chukagin, but it seems like when you have a fighter like, you know, as technically good as Joanna or as Shevchenko, they can stay away from the big shots of Andrade and just piece her apart from the outside. And I think that's what we're going to get here with Shevchenko. Not to mention, we are back in the big cage, and I feel like that does uh, favor Shevchenko ever so slightly here. I'm not a huge proponent of saying if this was in the small cage, Andrade knocks her ass out, but that does definitely add to the advantage here for Shevchenko. I also think that if Shevchenko wants to take the, the Chukagin or the Maya route in terms of tripping her and taking her to the ground and kind of smothering her from on top, she could absolutely do that too. I'm not the most sold on the fact that Jessica Andrade is any good off of her back. Um, and, and I think that the biggest way that Andrade actually wins this fight, most people would think it would be the knockout. But my concern is if she's actually the stronger one in the clinch. Like, what if she pushes her up against the cage and kind of just does it for 15 minutes, takes her down or whatever it is, right? A lot of a lot of people want to bank on the uh, the second round that Jennifer Maya had over Valentina Shevchenko. But if you watch that back, it was like Shevchenko going for a failed takedown. Jennifer Maya capitalizes on it, ends up on top of her two, for two minutes, and then, you know, her betting line goes down from minus 2,500 to minus 350 for one round. And then she just goes back to, you know, business as usual for rounds three, four, and five, takes her down, does her work from on top. And I think that would be the safest approach from her here. She's going to be, I, I believe that, you know, as much of a tank as Andrade is, I think that Valentina Shevchenko is the stronger one here. She's obviously going to be the bigger fighter too. And she's not going to be intimidated at all by this girl, right? Like we know Shevchenko is a, a fucking mean person herself. She's just intimidating in her own aspects. But uh, in terms of the striking game, she's way more diverse on the feet her kicking game will really help her she seems kind of stiff and tense on the outside at times but it's just like a little ball of energy just waiting to explode you know that's when she just like 
she doesn't telegraph any of her shots. Like when she throws her spinning back kick, it just comes so quickly that fighters aren't able to, uh, you know, uh, telegraph it or see it coming. And they ultimately, uh, you know, eat like the brunt of the shot there. So I think that uh, Andrade will have an issue with the uh, the speed, um, the, the technical striking abilities of Shevchenko. And not to mention, like Shevchenko going into that Holly Holm fight, Nobody really thought she'd be able to beat her over five rounds in a stand-up fight. That's exactly what she did. Holly Holm is so good at setting traps and, you know, beating you to the punch and those striking exchanges. But Shevchenko clean sweeped her in that fight, man. She, she was ripping her up with that lead hook of hers uh, and obviously some good kicks to, 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 to bat too. But I do like Shevchenko here. She is worthy of that minus 400-ish range that she's currently at. My, my, my concern was the myth method in which she wins i'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to andrade here i think she survives the 25 minutes i think we do see shevchenko go out there and squeeze out a decision here actually not even a squeeze i think she wins pretty much four out of five if not all five rounds here and wins a decision so i'll go shevchenko by decision at plus 140 not too bad of a line and i think she's parlayable here say what you want about it being chalky but i think that this is a solid spot for her to go out there and expose jessica andrade like andrade seems intimidating she seems like a serious threat but then when you really like boil it down, there are the fighters that are just technically better than her that will beat her, like the Rose Nama Unices, like the Yuani and Jaychicks. And I think that Valentina Shevchenko is the best out of that pack, and she should be able to go out there and put on a good performance. So I got Shevchenko decision plus 130, I believe is what I said. How do you see this one? Yeah, yeah, very fair. I think that Jessica and Josh poses a lot of problems, but ultimately you got the women's flyweight goat in Valentina Shevchenko. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of competition for at 125 pounds. They're desperate for challengers. Jessica Andrade's fought at 135. She's fought at 115. She always gives a good account of herself. Why not put her in the spot and see what she can do? So it'd be a fun fight. This is the best line that you're getting on Shevchenko for a long time because she's always these 10 to 1 plus favorites. But see, the thing about her is that she's got this credited kickboxing background. You know, great kickboxer, great striking. And yet a lot of her fights now, she just wants to get these fights to the ground. She wants to have a grappler opponent. She's got a very grappling heavy approach. And then all of a sudden it's like kickboxing's taking a back seat. So when you look at the numbers, realistically, uh, the fight with Jennifer Meyer last two minutes, it's a 25-minute long fight. She lands 62 significant strikes. It's not much, but the five takedowns, right? The Caitlin Chikagian fight, she puts her away in the third, but it's 40 significant strikes landed going into the third round with the three takedowns. The Liz Carmouche fight, 42 significant strikes landed in five rounds. One takedown in that fight. Jessica I, two takedowns. Joannian Jacek, five takedowns. Uh, Priscilla Cachoeira, who you, I'm sure you didn't even really need to take down. It was yeah. a very easy path to victory, and she did take it. Two takedowns. It's like she's just interested in getting these fights to the ground and grinding the opponent. So the problem with Jessica Andrade is that are you going to go out there and just wrestle her down? I mean, she's very physically strong. She's also five foot two. She has a low center of gravity. Taking her down is a problem. Holding her down is a problem. You know, she's very strong. She's wily. As far as the fight stays standing, we give advantage to Shevchenko because we know how good her striking is, but she's got a reluctancy to actually strike all that much anymore. So with Andrade, it's like she's a no-fucks-given fighter. She just lets her hands fly. She's basically a female version of John Lineker. And as far as um, output being a problem for her, it's not a problem. You look at fights in the same period of time, her versus Rose Namajunas, that's only 15 minutes. The, the second fight, obviously, right? 71 significant strikes landed, and she's coming on hot in the third. Yeah. That thing goes five, it's 100 for sure. You know, the, the first time around, it only just lasts into the second round. She already already landed 47. She's closing the distance. She's ripping the body. She's hurting the leg. You know, her versus Tisha Torres, 92. Her versus Claudia Gadelia, 141 significant strikes landed in 15 minutes. Her versus Angela Hill, 131 significant strikes landed in 15 minutes. 
That time she fought Joanna, she got nailed 225 times. You kept coming for it. Kept coming for it. Good chin. BJJ black belt, tough to submit, tough to take down. She's got the variables, right? So Valentina looks flawless, absolutely flawless. But then if you want to falter that last fight with Jennifer Maya, that's like the one time you can falter because A, she probably does lose the first round. And B, it's like, you know, she just did the same thing to everybody else. I'll just take her down. And yeah, you could do it against Jennifer Maya, take her down. But when she got on top, I mean, Valentina off her back looked a little stiff, you know? She didn't look like she was popping back up as quick. She didn't look like, you know, she was overly comfortable there. Is she comfortable there? Yeah, she's black belt. Remember that fight with Juliana Pena? Same thing, taken down, arm by right off her back. Um, but with Andrade, it's like if Andrade's going to take you down, then you could have a bit of a problem. Now, Andrade usually does have a cardio problem herself, but when you look back at that Rose fight the second time around, it looked like she was just coming to her own. The Caitlin Jukagian fight, you know, she she kind of slow starting in the early portion of that first round and then just puts it on her, boots her in the body. TKO's there at the end of the first. Like, she's a little tank engine, man. She gets better as time goes at 125, not a terrible weight cut. One's got to imagine she's got a little gas in the gas in the tank and can push a pace for a little bit. It's interesting. It's certainly interesting. At least it's more a more interesting fight for Valentina than we have had. But uh, I, I got to go with the champ to retain. I think uh, she's a special talent. She's been there. She's done that. She's seen it all. She's the only girl that's reasonably given Amanda Nunez a reasonable fight. And she did it twice, you know, arguably got robbed the second time around. She's probably the only but or the only person that's got a good chance of maybe beating Amanda Nunez if she was to move up to 135 and make it happen. Like, at least this is that girl. Now, Nunez looks on a different level since then. And uh, quietly, Shenchenko, 33 years old now, but she's still got the goods. But how do I attack this from a, from a prop standpoint? I like the over two and a half, the over three and a half, and that maybe Shevchenko by decision. We'll start with the two and a half. If Shevchenko wins, she's looking to use those takedowns again. She's going to take this fight to the ground. She's going to try to grind you. It's a slower paced fight, not huge on output. We've already outlined that. If Andrade wins, she's not she's not one punching Shevchenko. You know, no. is she is she snatching up a guillotine or something like a fluke move like that? Maybe, but more so than not, she slams her on the ground. She holds her down. She tries to bank a few rounds. So this thing's getting rounds in. Over two and a half minus one eighty five, it is chalk. It's not the worst. The over three and a half, again, I think this thing's getting into the fourth or fifth round at the very least. Over three and a half is minus one thirty five, better price tag. And then finally with Shevchenko, I mean, I wouldn't say she's a decision machine, but she's got really high ring IQ. She knows where the easiest path to victory is. If you want to fight three times a year, you don't get in three wars a year. You don't get no. in three fight of the year candidates. You don't fight like Justin Gaethje. You no, know, if you want to do that, you fight once a year. That's how it's a. She, this girl's going out there. She'll fight. She'll fight three, four times a year. Don't take any damage. Move on with your with your brain intact, healthy, wealthy. One of the most dominant champions in flyweight history, men's or women's. Shevchenko's got a nice little legacy going. You don't just throw that all away to to bang it out with Jessica Andrade standing. It's like no man, that's the one thing you don't want to do. So I think she looks to take the smart path, and the smart path is grind this thing down and win rounds. Yeah. So three and a, over two and a half, over three and a half. Shevchenko has her way. She grinds it over 25, hopefully picks up that, that decision. And then that Shevchenko uh, by decision is plus 140. So uh, have your have your go at that. But the spot I like the most is that two and a half. Yeah, I like that as well. I think that this will be slowed down. Why risk it? Like you said, why go uh, in the pocket with Jessica Andrade and risk your legacy and risk your winning streak and risk your opportunity to potentially have that trilogy fight with Amanda Nunes and possibly try to, you know, recover that loss the the super fight that i want to see is if zhang is able to continue her stretch and she goes up to 125 and fight valentina maybe if valentina gets past that 
she can make a case for herself to be like, all right, give me Nunez now. Look, I've destroyed pretty much everybody, including the champion below me. Let me go up and, and fight there. So, yeah, we both like Shevchenko by decision. We think this banks rounds. We think this goes the full 25 minutes. And plus 134, Shevchenko to win by decision is not too bad of a price tag, considering that she's a minus, what, 420 favorite and in this spot. I think this is a very good spot for her to go out there and do just that. All right, let's move on to the co-main event and the second title fight that we have. We have the UFC Women's Strawweight Championship on the line here. We got Wiley Zhang going up against Rose Nama Yunus. Now, Rose loses or loses her title to Jessica Andrade, comes back after like a year or so, beats uh, Jessica Andrade two rounds to one, and it wasn't looking good in terms of how the momentum was shifting in that fight and how she finds herself once again in a title fight. And I'm not sure how many people are really out there kind of banging the drum being like, she doesn't deserve the title because stylistically she presents some interesting threats here to Zhang that I don't think Zhang has seen in the UFC at this point in time. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this fight. I think uh, Rose definitely has the loudest bark out of any of the dogs that are fighting for a title this weekend. Uh, but I ultimately do think that uh, the um, the China representative here and Zhang pulls off the victory. Now, uh, we know what Rose's approach is, right? She likes to use her footwork. She likes to go on the outside. She likes to pick her apart from the outside, uh, pick her opponents apart from the outside, and then just get out of the way and then start moving again, and then pretty much rinse and repeat from there. One thing that is kind of being swept under the rug, and we haven't seen it, in her last several fights is her ground game. She has a really crafty jiu-jitsu game that not a lot of people are talking about nowadays because like her last four fights have pretty much just been stand-up fights, right? She goes out there and outstrikes these women on the feet or you know she loses the fights getting slammed on her head by Jessica Andrade. Um, but I think that's an aspect of this fight that if it does come into play, things could uh, the, the line could look much closer than it should. Um, I do like Zhang here, though. I think that she'll be able to keep the fight on the feet. She has a hundred um, percent takedown defense. Um, you know, she's great with the combination. She throws with absolute heat. The one thing that I like is that um, the the one thing that I like is let me just take care of something right there. All right. Uh, the one thing that I did like about this was uh, the combinations and and the countering of Zhang in the pocket, right? Rose is always going to have to come into the pocket to get her strikes off. But the good thing that Zhang does is she holds her ground and she lets her strikes go. And she always wants to be the last one to have the last say in those combinations. She has a great leg kick. And more often than not, you see fighters finishing their combinations with leg kicks. She more often than not starts her combinations with a leg kick, which is not, not an approach you uh, see that much from fighters nowadays but that, i think that's going to be very important for her to establish that leg kick nice and early here if you guys remember the second fight with joanna and jacek and rose that's something that joanna pretty much implemented from the get-go was that leg kick and it slowed down rose the later the fight went so i think it'll be very important for zhang to do the same thing here so that she can get her hands going a little bit more on the feet and rose isn't as mobile the later this fight goes now rose could have success earlier in this fight but i think the later that it goes we'll see the power the pressure and the technique of zhang start to catch up to rose and rose is going to start to slow down i think she's going to get demoralized and i think that we see zhang very likely to finish this fight too i think that she's very live to go out there and finish this fight in the fourth or fifth round with her strikes i'd be very surprised if we see rose actually stand up for with her for five rounds like this is this isn't really the joanna and rose fight you're getting zhang who throws with much more heat much more power and much more confidence in her strikes uh than joanna and i think it's going to make rose pay in this spot so I do like uh, Zhang here. I, again, I do think that she is the least likely to win out of all the three champions. But even though she is my least confident, I think she has a hell of a lot uh, of odds and chances to go out there and pull out, uh, and, and defend her title once again here against Rose Namajunas. So I'll go Zhang, better combinations, better technique, and then ultimately putting her out late in this fight. I like the round four 
round five props here uh in terms of um in terms of zhang we got round four coming in at plus 1400 round five coming in at plus 1900 or even if you just want to take uh zhang by ko plus 255 not too bad of a spot either but i think that we see zhang go out there and finish rose how are you seeing this one yeah, I think the same thing. I think Zhang breaks her down over time. Zhang is a very, very uh, scary fighter in that she's, like, sponsored by the state, man. Like, all she does is train day in and day out. Like, uh, I wouldn't want to make it a political thing. I know Rose is trying to do that. But what's afforded to Zhang is the ability to just train day in and day out. I mean, everything's paid for. Everything's catered to her. She has, like, a sole purpose, and that's to bring exposure to Chinese fighters, put her family in a better position financially bring pride to her country right how many fighters are doing the same thing mcgregor walks around with an irish flag george walks around with a canadian flag you're trying to put your country on the map this girl's extremely dedicated to the cause she's in extremely good shape and you just see the improvements every time out from her she's scary man like she's extremely physically strong so in terms of getting her to the ground good luck in terms of she wants to take you down she can't her wrestling herself is not all that bad you know staying out of submissions <clears throat> striking's good cardio's good chin's good will to win's good the desire's there the fight with Rose with his Joanny and Jacek, that's her gut check performance. That's her, like, finally someone's going to extend you. And, uh, you know, she is getting beat to the punch. She is getting out volume. But it's like the adjustment she makes, the punch selection, when she needs that big punch, she lands that big punch. It's an, it's an extremely high-level performance from both ladies. But it just goes to show the improvements from Zhang. We knew that Joanna could do that. We knew that Joanna had the striking. Joanna was once upon a time considered the GOAT because she had already well-established herself and proved herself. Zhang just took over that mantle, 31 years old, always getting better. I do see a lot of positive things coming out of her. And with Rose Namajunas, you know, whether she has to talk about all that communist stuff to try to amp herself up for the fight, it, it doesn't matter. You know, she's got one trait is that the longer fights go, Rose tends to fall apart a little bit. Call it a mental lapse, you know. I mean, I've been on record talking about it for a lot of the fights, but... You know, she always had to have the dog with her, right? Because it's like a, it's a mental health dog. It's like a, a, a it's an emotional support dog, right? She has the dog with her all the time. It's got to be there in fight week and this and that. That's fine. You know, McGregor throws a dolly at, at a bus and it's like she can't fight. You know, she's got PTSD from it. She can't sleep. She When she was fighting Invicta back in the day, she would always allude to like she had some traumatic experience in her childhood. Again, don't want to get into it. She's, you know, with dating a full-grown man and Pat Berry at a young age. Like she's had it. She's had a pretty crazy life i think but one thing is like when the pressure gets really really hot on her she and fighting anyways that tends tends to be when she falls apart a little bit so just looking at least like recent history on the matter um we'll start with uh with the carolina kovakevich fight she won the first round of that fight on all three judges scorecards right but eventually carolina of all people just keeps coming forward with her keeps the fight standing and outstrikes her so again this is we're just looking at it because it's a loss. But she does start good in that fight, wins the first round, and then eventually loses. Now you go to that the Joanna and Jacek fight the second time around. She won the first two rounds against Joanna in the rematch. Then she lost rounds three and four. She did rally back to win the fifth round and ultimately win the fight. But one has to wonder that the rounds three and four, she starts to fatigue. Her game kind of goes gets away from her. The Jessica and Draj fight the first time around, she's killing Jessica and Draj, bro. It's 10-8 first round. She absolutely kills her pillar to post. In the second round, Jessica Andrade is able to... People say it was just a slam. It was just a slam. No. Watch the entire lead-up prior to that. The leg kicks start to slow her down. She's getting to her. She's causing her to work. She gets a hold of that slam, knocks her out. Fine. So you book a rematch. The rematch should have been five rounds. What world do we not get five rounds in that rematch? Well, we get yeah. three. And what you see in the third, she wins the first two rounds. And in the third, she starts to break apart again. 
So I'm not just saying this stuff to be mean. I'm not just saying stuff to try to be that guy that's getting a reaction or being a dick. I just mean there's that history of she usually always starts off well. She usually always has a good first round. When she knocked out Joanna the first time, great. And it was in the first round. We know that she can start quick. We know that she's very accurate. She's very precise. She's got very good foot movement. Uh, she's in and out. Her angles are good. She's got all that. But it's the longer that you can stretch her and put pressure on her and hit her and hurt her and cause her to overthink it and doubt herself, that's when she falls apart. And I think that Zhang is just like way too cast iron mentally. So again, you could probably bet this one live. You know, if you don't like the Zhang straight up, Rose is probably pretty competitive in the first two anyways. I think Zhang takes over beyond that. So looking from this one on a prop perspective, uh, I got the over three and a half at minus 170. I couldn't tell you much more beyond that. If Rose is going to win this fight, she'd have to catch her. If Zhang's going to win this fight, it's possible that you mentioned the Zhang inside the distance, like by TKO. I don't hate that at all. I don't hate that at all. I think she could break it the longer this one goes. But I don't want to discredit Rose too much because yeah. outside of getting pelted on the head by the world's craziest slam, durability has not been an issue for her. Girl can fight. So uh, so I feel like this thing's getting some rounds in. But instead of taking that full-on fights going 25 minutes, I looked at the over three and a half as my way out. So that's the prop I like best in this scenario. Yeah, this fight should be competitive for about three rounds. And then I think after that, we're going to start to see, I'd say two and a half rounds. And then after that, I think we're going to see Zhang start to take over and truly implement her striking game and possibly find that finish. I cannot wait, though. That that fight is probably the one that I'm most anticipating for this weekend. There's nothing that really comes close to it for me. The other title fights are intriguing, but this one seems to have the most sauce on it in terms of the most threat from the underdog. But outside of that, I, I still think that Zhang retains. All right. We're pretty much at the main event here, and I do want to take this time to once again remind you guys, tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern, me, Cody, Dan Levy from Best Fight Pick slash Half the Battle, as well as Brett Apley from Daily Fan MMA. We'll be breaking down the card from bottom to top once again for you guys with the weigh-ins in mind, and that's going to be right here on this channel. So make sure you guys hit that subscribe. Hit, make sure you guys hit those notifications as well so you guys are bright, ready, and ready for us at 9 p.m. Eastern tomorrow night. Once again, make sure you guys join us for the Ultimate Weigh-In Show where we break down the card one last time with the weigh-ins in mind. Also, we got close to 270 people in the chat here. Make sure you guys hit that like. Let's set that 150 mark before we get to uh, the end of the show. And we appreciate everybody joining us on this Thursday night. You guys know Thursday nights, Thursday evenings, 8 p.m. Eastern is the propping you up night. And that's what exactly me and Cody have been doing for you guys since back in November. And that's what we're going to keep doing for you guys moving forward. So I appreciate all the support and everybody that hopped on over from odds now knowing where your night should be spent on Thursdays and Fridays right here on this channel. All right, let's get to the main event here. We got Kamar Usman going up against Jorge Masvidal for the second time. The first time they fought each other way back at UFC 251 on Fight Island back in July of last year. And Usman comes up victorious. Now, the narrative outside or after that fight was Jorge Masvidal took the fight on six days notice. Let's be honest, Cody. We know that there was rumblings in the background that they were trying to make that fight for that date. They couldn't uh, compromise on a number. I believe Jorge Masvidal was somewhat training for the fight at least. It's not like he just hopped off the couch and took that fight on six days notice. Not to mention he made the 170-pound weight limit, so you know he was in somewhat of a shape. Um but he is legitimately getting eight weeks now or six to eight weeks, whatever the fuck it is. Uh, so we might see a little bit more improvement from him here. 
With that said, you're going up with the, one of the greatest welterweights of all time. And that's all due to respect to my guy, George St. Pierre. But I think that when it's all said and done, uh, Kamar Usman could definitely make a case for that, given his style, right? You got two of the best traits that you need in this in the fighting game. You got great cardio so that you can fuel that great wrestling that you have for a 25-minute period, completely wear on your opponent and just you know either finish them or grind on them for 25 minutes and get the victory that way. There's a reason he's 18-1. and one. It's very hard to beat this type of fighter. The only guy that's going to come close to it is Colby Covington, who is in pretty much a carbon copy of uh, Kamaru Usman. I'd say the only difference is Kamaru has a little bit more power and Colby might throw a little bit more volume. But those are the only two guys that should be fighting for the welterweight title for the next little while until we see how real Hamzat Shemaev truly is. But I don't think that anybody else is going to beat Kamaru Usman at this point in time. Jorge Masvidal is the perfect example of right place, right time. I mean, and don't get me wrong, there are certain things that he needed to do to secure where he's at at this point in his career, but there's a reason he has 14 losses. There's a reason he was just a journeyman before he knocked out Darren Till and then eventually got that crazy flying knee knockout over Ben Askren. If that knee was like two inches to the right, Ben Askren survives that knee, and then that's pretty much a Ben Askren clinch fuck, grapple fuck for 15 minutes, right? Let's be honest. That's probably what was going to happen. There's a reason uh, Jorge Masvidal was a plus 180 underdog going into that fight. Now he knocks out Ben Askren, goes out there and takes one of the easiest fights you can take against Nate Diaz and pummels him for four rounds or three rounds, whatever it was, and gets the victory there. And now all of a sudden he's supposed to beat one of the greatest welterweights of all time? Fuck out of here. Kamar Usman has great uh, durability. He has great cardio. And a lot of people want to put a lot of stock into Gilbert Burns hurting Kamar Usman in that first round. What's that fight back? I think the commentary was just being hella over biased in that spot. I think that, um, you know, Kamaru did drop to his hands. Don't get me wrong. Never recorded a knockdown, but he's right back to his feet, right back into his stance, ready to throw down for the rest of that round. It didn't look like he was on wobbly legs. It didn't look like he was close to being finished. It was a perfectly timed shot from Gilbert Burns that put him on his hands. But then we saw Kamaru Usman, like the heart of a champion, was able to get his wits back about him and then eventually start to take over once that fight hit the second and third rounds, eventually finishing him in that third round. But I just don't see this fight going any different than the first one, right? He's going to slow this fight down. He's going to push uh, Jorge Masvidal up against the cage. He's going to be the stronger fighter in those positions. He may not land crazy amount of takedowns this time around, but he still should be able to control Jorge up against the cage. When Jorge loses fights, even the fight that you go back and watch against him and uh, Ben Henderson, a guy who's a 155er, pretty much losing the same way over five rounds, getting pushed up against the cage, having a lackadaisical approach, and doesn't really do much to really you know, uh, uh, distance himself from ben, ben Henderson in that fight. Exactly the same thing is going to happen here with Kamaru Usman. We see Usman go out there and maybe give up the first round, maybe, but I think after that, it's going to be all Usman uh, uh, going forward from there. And I think he grinds out uh, Masvidal here. So I'm going Usman by decision. One thing I will give Masvidal, the guy hasn't been finished in 12 years, right? Last time we saw him got finished was that inverted triangle choke by uh, by Toby Yamada back in Bellator. But it's been 12 years since then. Masvidal has gone up against some heavy hitters, some solid jiu-jitsu players, not to mention Damian Maya, who was hanging off his back for the majority of that fight. And he was able to shuck off the, the submission attempts and stayed in that fight to see the judge's decision. So I'm going Kamar Utsman by decision. We're getting minus 130 on that line right now. I think that's a great line. Uh, again, it's all more so for the, the the durability of Masvidal. I just think that Masvidal will be able to stay in this fight for 25 minutes, and we'll see Usman go out there and grind him out the way that he's able to. It's not going to be an exciting one. Don't expect a firecracker like we saw with Kobe Covington or that crazy fight that we saw with Gilbert Burns over 15 minutes. 
This one's going to look very similar to that first fight, and for good reason, because that's the best way, at least resistance, that Kamaru Usman is going to be able to secure this victory. And why fuck with your legacy that you are creating at this point of time in your career? You're getting to the last couple fights in your career. Why are you going to go out there and try to risk it all by trading in the pocket with Jorge Masvidal, who's clearly the better technical striker? We can all agree on that. And he definitely does have some power on his shots. But let's not play that game. Let's clinch him up. Foot stomp him all you want. I don't give a fuck. Let's take home that decision victory. And I think that's exactly what he'll be able to do here. So I like Kamaru Usman. Decision, minus 130. I think that's a great line. How are you seeing this one? First and foremost, shout out to you mentioning my boy Toby Amada. That inverted <laughs> triangle. Still to this day, one of the nastiest submissions you've ever seen in your life. <clears throat> but yeah, Mazadal's been around for a long time. And that's kind of the theme here is that he, he is a journeyman. You, gotta, you can't get around it. He's been a journeyman pretty much his entire career. Comes from the bare knuckle boxing days. He's got his own promotion actually now. Yeah. Um, but I mean, his life was dramatically changed by a viral video of him knocking out Ben Askren with a flying knee. Up until that point, you know, he had fought Strike Force, he had fought Bellator, he had fought the UFC. He's fighting on prelims. He wins some fights. He loses some fights. He's in a lot of these close decisions where he believes he won, but ultimately he's just not quite doing enough. He was on record talking to the judges after the fights multiple times, being like, "Why did I lose that fight? Please explain to me what did I did wrong." Just like, because he, he he, it's a head scratcher why he's losing all these close decisions. But that's the life of a journeyman. That's going through the motion. At some point, he gets a Darren Till fight. He's brought into England. He's supposed to lose. He's the underdog against Darren Till. And what does he go out there? He goes and he exposes Till as somebody who's not quite at this level, at least certainly not yet. He catches him. He knocks him out. It's a brilliant little knockout. And it puts uh, George Masvidal on the map, but not in an overly big way. It, all it does is set him up for that Ben Askren fight. And then hitting Ben Askren, it's like it changed everything. Now at this point, he believes he's Tony Montana. He believes he's Scarface. He's showing up to events wearing like, you know, a Gucci house coat, so talking real. all type of nonsense. He's like really much being somebody that he's not. But I get it. It's the pro wrestling approach to fighting. Colby Covington really doesn't believe most of that stuff either. But you're playing up a character. But like his his character, I don't know. It's just like he, you had a sweet character. You were street fighting moms at all. You know, you were... Wearing the Hawaiian shirt, the cool guy from Miami, you know, the, the Cuban immigrant. Father came over here for a better life, living the American fucking dream. Like, what more, what better gimmick could you want than that? Now he's playing like fake Connor, you know, like he's yeah. playing like he, and so he's dodging fights as well. Doesn't want to fight Colby on record being like, I'll fight you when I decide I'm fighting you. But that's not <laughs> how it works. Fight him right now. He's the number one guy. You're the number two guy? Fight him right now. Doesn't want to fight him. Doesn't want to fight these, these, just wants the money fight. And so they create a fake title for him. And then he gets to fight Nate Diaz. And after winning a very one-sided fight against Nate Diaz, in which he controls every second of every minute of every round until it's over, he, he's like drumming up a rematch with Nate Diaz. Like he wants to yeah. fight him again. Like, what are, what are you doing? That's the stuff I don't like to see. But you can't fault him. You know, he's mid-30s. He's got 50 pro fights under his belt. He's been there. He's done that. He's fought for the Strikeforce world title. He's fought for the UFC world title. And he's finally enjoying a taste of the good life. He's finally got some money. He's finally got publicity. He's finally got sponsors sending him stuff. He's finally living that good life. So yeah, he wants, he wants the big fight. But Tyron Woodley did the same shit. He didn't want to fight the top challengers anymore. He wanted to fight Nate Diaz. He wanted to fight Conor McGregor. He only wanted money fights. And you saw Tyron's skill, career, down the shitter. Right. If you're not testing yourself, you're not improving. And I think Usman is just motivated to just become 
again, I mentioned this with Paul yesterday, but there's like a vibe going on with the three African champions. You got Francis Ngannou, Israel Adesanya, and Kamaru Usman. And there's a huge momentum wave right now. You know, they're doing awesome things. They're putting African MMA on the map. They're, 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 ex they're you know, shining a light. And uh, they're, they're getting some money there. They're getting sponsors there. You think that there's a UFC Chinese Performance Institute now? Great. Put it at UFC Africa Performance Institute. You know what kind of quality of fighter that they're going to be able to produce? But uh, he, he's focused on winning. He's focused on legacy, like you mentioned. You got George's focused on the money. I want to make that money. I want to get that big payday so I can retire comfortably. And Usman is something more than that. And that's what made George a great champion. He had money. He, he, he had accolades. He had respect, but he wanted legacy. He just wanted more. There was that. That's what drove him. There was a fire. There was just like you're never satisfied. Listen, when he's 40, 50, 60 years old, it'll be a miserable existence because it's like nothing's ever going to satisfy that guy. There's, there's a drive within him to just continuously do great things. And as a result, he willingly is like, you want me to fight my jiu-jitsu coach? You want me to fight one of my close personal friends? You want me to leave? My gym that got to me to this level, that have poured hours into me, getting me here. You want me to just abandon all that and fight this guy? Sure. Just because it's a fight, I'll take it. He'd take any fight. He'd fight his mother if he had to. It's a desire to, that's obviously a stretch. But I'm yeah. saying it's a desire to compete. It's a desire to win. Usman's got that. He's the consummate professional. Now, as much as one guy wants it, and as much as one guy set himself up, and one guy's a professional, one guy has, he's the cardio and the wrestling. We've seen this fight already. Six days notice or not. The stats remain the same. You know, Usman's probably going to control him up against the cage. He's going to foot stomp him. He's going to slow him down. He's going to slowly grind these rounds. He's going to complete those takedowns. Full camp or not, probably plays with the same thing. But this is punchy kicky, man. This is the hurt business. This is the fight game. And as far as punchers' chances go, Masvidal is alive in that regard. You saw him hurt Usman the first time around. That was, that was on short notice. You mentioned you thought he was relatively in shape. Maybe he was. He had to cut 20 pounds the day before the weigh-ins. So... That would scream, I had a fucking tough weight cut, dude. And he still went out there for five rounds and managed to hurt him in the first. But then you see Gilbert Burns, a natural 55er. Also, in theory, I didn't think he was that hurt, but, you know, clips him. The older you get, you know, just like George. George got knocked out by Matt Sarah. Like, come on. You know, George got boxed up by Johnny Hendricks on the gas <laughs> for that one, by the way. But, uh, you know, he did get boxed up by him. Uh, I still think he won, but you know what I mean? It was a close yeah. fight. It's like, it's like shit, shit can absolutely happen. And with Masvidal, he has nothing to lose. So what happens if he gets blanketed again? It's no big deal. His stock doesn't go down. It already happened. He's already got 14 pro losses. People don't really care if he gets blanketed here. But if he goes out and throws a dazzling flying knee and clips him, or he lets his hands go and hurts him, or he comes in with, you know, a, actually having a good camp, and Mike Thomas Brown putting a good game plan together, like, could he not make this happen? Is he alive in that regard? Maybe. But it's like, uh, you know. I learned my lesson when I took Gaethje over Khabib on the basis of a hunter's <laughs> chance. It's like cardio and wrestling is what got you to the GOAT status. It's why you have current GOAT status. Usman is riding pretty close to GOAT status. George, my boy. George Canadian. We love George. George, the OG original. But it's like as far as putting resumes together, this guy's resume looks pretty good. Uh, yeah, like how, how can you discredit that? So I, I got to go with Usman. Again, if you don't like the money line, you go with the decision. George Masvidal is cast iron. You don't submit this guy. You don't knock this guy out. He took the fight on six days notice and survived. Now he's got a full camp. So I think that if Usman's winning, Usman's winning by decision. If Masvidal wins, he could knock him out. If Masvidal wins, it doesn't figure to be on the scorecard. No. 
But because we're taking Usman, it would be an Usman by decision. And that improves your minus 425 price tag to a minus 130 price tag. Like it way better. And actually, you and I, we did a, a propping you up for the last time they fought. And we were on the same thing. It was Usman, Usman by decision. Came through that night. Hoping for a similar result here. Yeah, actually, I, I think you're mistaken regarding that one. I think we did uh, the propping you up for the Gilbert Burns one, and we had him at via decision. And we're like, that's what I was going to tee up here when we go over our, our three best bets. I know we both have Usman via decision as one of our three best bets. So he's probably going to go out there and finish what he has about this weekend, <laughs> given the luck that we have. Rodrigo <laughs> Dan style. Yeah, exactly. All right, speaking of which, let's get to the three best bets so we can wrap this thing up for you guys again tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern. Me, Cody, Dan Levy from Half the Battle, and Brad Apley will be breaking down the fights one last time for you guys with the weigh-ins in mind. All right, let's get these uh let's get these going right here. Let me just get the slides are ready. All right. So first and foremost, I got Usman via decision. That is a no-brainer here. I really like the spot for him. Again, Masvidal, super durable. It's going to be hard for all Usman to put him away, no matter how good Usman truly is here. But I do think we see him grind it out. Super boring fight. I think this card is going to come from a screeching halt because you're coming off of Rose Namajunas going up against Wiley Zhang. And then we're just going to have this screech to Kamaru Usman going out there and just decisioning Ori Masvidal over 25 minutes. Funny enough, we had Wally Zhang against Yuani and Jacek, followed by UL Romero and Israel Adesanya. So I think it's going to look the same this, this, this weekend. All right, next up I have Carl Roberson via KO at plus 335. I think he keeps the feet, uh, the fight on the feet for the majority of it, uh, rips up the lead leg of Brendan Allen, and then eventually puts his punches together to knock him out. Plus 335, I love that line. He may be even a good straight play, but let's just wait and see him what, what he looks like on the scales first before we go out there and invest in our guy Carl Roberson, who's had immense battles with the uh the scales apparently so let's see how he looks tomorrow morning first and then we'll decide if that's truly a good play lastly i gotta go with the round props here while he's saying in rounds four and five you got plus 1400 and plus 1900 i think these are very solid spots for her to go out there and finish rose late we know rose will be competitive early in this fight but the longer that it goes i expect i expect zhang's uh power heavy style and power combinations to truly start to take over and she should start to run away with this fight with the very good uh probability of her finishing this fight the later that it goes all right cody you're up yeah, so we're definitely on the same page with Usman by decision. I think he just does the same thing he did to George last time. Go out there, grind him up against the cage, get the takedowns when you can, Out, just have the little bit better work rate, have the pace, break this guy down. We've seen him do it once before. I don't think a whole lot changes, camp or full camp or not. So Usman by decision, minus 130. We're going to move on closer to a little bit, close to a even money, but Shevchenko versus Andrade fight goes the distance, minus 105. Honestly, I think this thing's banking rounds. Shevchenko's got that wrestling ability to take this fight to the ground, grind it out. If for whatever reason Andrade is able to dump her and take her down and, and hold top pressure, I still don't think she's finishing her. I mean, you've got two world-class opponents here, world-class talents. Shevchenko not likely getting finished by anybody, so I feel safe in that regard. With Andrade, you know, does she falter? Does she fall apart? This is a big spot for her. She's got a never-say-die attitude. And in the fight with Rose Namajunas the second time around, you saw her really coming along strong in that third round. So as long as she doesn't get tired, she's going to get some rounds as well. Fight goes the distance, minus 105. And then, yeah, you just can't take all these close to even money plays all the time. You got to get something good for some plus money. And yeah, this one doesn't look uh, very appealing to a lot of people. I get this. Cardellosi by decision plus 420 outside of the number being funny. Uh, why would we take Cardellosi over over a fighter in Nali Yang who's been submitted four times and this and that? Again, it comes down to a style clash, right? Not Lani or uh, Liang hasn't lost a fight since she was 21 years old three years ago. She's 24 now. She's filling out. She's getting better. But beyond that, she's been submitted four times. She's never been knocked out. 
It's with Carnelosi. Carnelosi has eight of her nine career wins by by knockout. She's a knockout fighter. She's a threat standing. She has that John Lineker style, move forward, winger, winger hands. She's got big power, clearly. You know, a favor over Angela Hill in her UFC debut. There was a lot of respect coming out of her. But if she has her way and she goes out there and she boxes up Liang, hurts Liang, Liang's never been knocked out. So Liang's going to go with these desperation takedowns, try to clinch her, try to slow her down as much as she can, ultimately get out muscled, ultimately lose. I think this thing's going the distance. And uh, the, it, just go the distance is plus money. But Carnelosi by decision plus 420, too much for me to look away from. So that's a prop that I'm looking for this weekend for sure. All right, that looks pretty good to me. We got some good plus money plays there, as well as somewhat safer props there with the fight goes to decision for Shevchenko and then obviously the Usman decision. Hopefully, Usman doesn't channel his inner Gilbert Burns fight and finishes Jorge Masvidal this time around, and we can actually cast that minus 130 ticket. All right, that's pretty much a wrap on the show. I'll give Cody the, the stage in, in terms of anything he wants to say on the way out here, and then I'll bring us home. Cody, what, you got, what do you got for the for the viewers right now? I mean, shit, we were going to go a quick episode and then we're two and a half hours. <laughs> it's in, so. always that discussion, brother. Yeah, just, just let me let me just peel the curtains back a little bit for the viewers here. We always start, like, when I when I invite him into the stream and right before we're about to go live, we're like, yo, we'll, we'll try to keep this at like an hour and a half. You know I mean, let's try not to get over two hours. We'll see how it goes with the flow of the show. Obviously, Cody's going to be back tomorrow night so we can go a little bit more in depth on that show. And then here we are, fucking two hours and 13 minutes later, still going at it. But yeah, sorry, go ahead, Cody. No, I mean, that's it. Once we get flowing, we get talking, it's always a good time. So yeah, there's pretty much not, not much more else I can say. However, we will be doing the, the post weigh show tomorrow so we can have a little bit more to discuss with uh, hopefully everybody making weight. Hopefully all the fights stay together, but kind of break down uh, what everyone's looking at at the weigh-ins. Everyone obviously knows they can find me on Twitter at CJ Saftik, working on potentially getting my own channel up, Patreon, all that stuff. Uh, I want to just work on getting that last episode of Bookie Beatdown, Dogger Pass podcast out of the way next Tuesday, and then we'll see which where things are going. But yeah, lots of exciting time, lots of exciting fights coming up. Want to just thank everybody for taking the time and joining the chat. And I know last week I'd said I'd work on my uh, lighting for this week's episode, and literally it died. Like, I don't know, like the show went for a long time. It made it like an hour and a bit, and then it died off. So now I've seen a couple comments that are like, hanging out in you know toad atmosphere having a glass of wine like yeah i guess it's uh it's a romantic yeah. setting but for tomorrow's episode post and i can't let the rest of the cast uh you know outshine me no pun intended so i'll have my lighting on point for tomorrow well one thing i do want to bring up and shout out to my guy for your ufc bet picks here is dogger pass truly ending or are you guys actually going to be doing it over over zoom whatever you can reveal to us obviously if you guys want to keep things under wraps for now i completely respect that but just for the viewers that want to know what is the future plans for that yeah yeah so the show will continue to go on as it has it's been seven years in the making now um it's just we won't be able to do it together like in studio anymore so paul and pat are moving out to nova scotia i'm staying in ontario where that doesn't seem like it's super far. It's uh, it's like a 23 hour drive door to door, no stop. So to put things into perspective, I could drive to Florida in the, yeah. exact, in the exact same amount of time, right? Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty far away. Now my girlfriend is actually from Nova Scotia. So I pre pandemic was going two, three times a year, be able to see those guys during those times. We'll shoot some stuff when we're down there. But yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I went to college with Pat and Paul. I lived with Pat Mayo for the first two years that I moved to Toronto. I've got nothing but good things to say about those guys. So like a little bit of the magic feels to me like is getting lost. Uh, we'll still do the show. It'll still be, you know, you and I do a show and it, it, we, we do it over stream. It doesn't yeah. miss like we're, doesn't feel like we're missing a beat. It feels like we're in the same room. It feels like we're having conversation. Like that's all well and good. But same thing when you and I did stuff in studio, 
It was dope. It was so much ass. better. It was, it was so much better. Pod. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's, yeah. it's hard to get away from that. But uh, ultimately, like we started the show, we just wanted to give viewers a, a free show where they were our picks. And if they want to tail it or fade it or hopefully learn something by the end of the episode. But it was always one of those shows like free to the public, two guys, two buddies talking fights. And uh, yeah, I mean, people have been nothing but short of supportive. We started off with like a, a small little group of people and have grown it over the years. Went from, you know, uh, 500 views per episode to 10,000 views per episode and built a lot of, you know, fun times and good memories. And yeah, I mean, I've always had a lot of fondness in my heart for that. But as such is life, I'm 29 years old now. I'm about to turn 30. I gave Fight Network the best 10 years of my life. I started there when I was 19. I'm 20, I'm 29 now. So 10 years, you know, Paul and I did the show together for seven years. Pat and I had known each other for a decade. Like, um, it just feels like uh, going through changes, right? Positive changes, but just like anybody, the ball's got to keep rolling. You look at it from like making the jump from uh, LFA to the big leagues, right? Just at some point, you got to leave your local regional scene and, and do different things and branch out. And so I'm not calling Dogger past the regional scene. To me, it's the Super Bowl. To me, it's as good yeah. of a show as anybody has, right? It's just Easily. like... Uh, yeah, maybe it's time to just do other stuff as well. So love doing the show with you, my man. Love spending nearly three hours talking fights because to me, I, I really like doing it. And if you're still in the comments section listening to a, a, a kid ramble on, uh, kid, I'm almost 30, oh, fuck. <laughs> Life <laughs> is passing you by, Cody. On, yeah, yeah, then, then maybe you feel the same way. You know, you're a fight fan. You've had some good times. And uh, let's continue to make some memories and cash some tickets, buddy. Exactly. I appreciate it, Cody. Dude, always, you guys can find us 8 p.m. Eastern here, as you guys know. Can't wait to continue doing this with Cody, and obviously we'll see what happens with the future of Dog Air Pass and all that stuff for Cody. But yeah, shout out to everybody in the chat. If you guys haven't already, make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe, and reminder, as it's the fourth time, I remind you guys, tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern, Cody's back on the channel with Dan Levy and Brad Appley, and we're going to break down the fights for you one last time. So, Cody, I'm actually going to let you go. There's one more thing that I want to plug on the back end here, so I'll let you go so you can go on and do your things on this uh thursday evening uh so appreciate you stopping by you can head on out of here Absolutely. whenever you like and uh yeah uh, i want to give a big shout out here to my guy bigs omega who just brought it up the dog of the night challenge um yeah so i do want to just quickly plug this on the back end here the dog of the night challenge is a, a game that i pretty much made up uh where you pick one underdog play it's either a fighter or an over under you pick one uh over uh plus money play for the next 10 ufc events whoever is able to accumulate the most amount of profit in that amount of time cashes out based on whatever the prize pool is so we have a $25 game. We have a $100 game. We split it 65%, 25%, 10% from first, second, and third. And it's been getting a crazy amount of love. Uh, we got about 70 people that are in the lock of the night challenge right now. I believe the dog of the night challenge will start to eclipse that number based on the amount of traction that it's currently getting. So if you guys are interested in a pool like that, a game like that, it's probably the sharpest game that you'll find for MMA guys, considering you'll have to just dog hunt out here. Uh, if you guys are interested in that, slide in my DMs on Twitter at MMALOTN. Or if you guys have Instagram, slide in my DMs over there at MMALOTN on Twitter. Um, and yeah, I'll get you guys signed up. The deadline is this Sunday. So the day after UFC 261 is the deadline for the game. If you guys want to get in on it, you're more than welcome to. Um, and yeah, I, I can't wait to get this game going. It should be hella fun. Shout out to Biggs Omega, who's actually going to be more than likely cashing first place for the current game that's ending this week. And so shout out to Biggs Omega. And thank you for reminding me to bring that to the, um, to the spot. All right.
appreciate everybody hanging out like subscribe do all that shit i'll see you guys tomorrow morning actually the next stream that i have is 9 a.m tomorrow morning for the live wayne show i'm going to be watching the wayne's live with you guys talking some shit in the chat updating you guys on what the wayne's are looking like and then 9 p.m eastern tomorrow night the ultimate weigh-in show me Dan Levy from Best Fight Picks slash Half the Battle, Cody Safdick, who you just saw, and then uh, Brett Appley from Daily Fan MMA. Great, great lineup that I have for you guys. I can only bring out the all-stars for this big UFC 261 uh, event. So shout out to everybody that's going to be joining us tomorrow night. Appreciate you guys as always. Peace out.